0: Welcome to the Great Base Podcast, episode 74. I'm Steve Smith, along with Brandon Flanagan. We're in Boynton Beach, Florida. We're filming out of the FM Tennis Performance Center. Tonight, we're going from last week where we had a rookie coach, which we respect. The guy's starting and climbing his way up. And now we're going to a veteran coach, big time, a lot of years. Legend in tennis coaching, Tennis coaching, Chuck Creasy. Why don't you say a few things about Chuck
1: Sure, sure. For, for my tenure at Furman, he was only a few miles away uh, in, at Clemson for many years. He was there from 1975 until 2008. He's at Citadel now, which is a military college located in Charleston. He's the head coach of the men's tennis team. But over his tenure in college tennis, he's accumulated 735 uh, match wins, college victories. He's in so many Hall of Fames, the National Collegiate Hall of Fame, uh, South Carolina Tennis Hall of Fame, the Indiana High School Tennis Athletic Hall of Fame, Clemson University Hall of Fame, Tennessee Tech Athletic Hall of Fame, Tennessee Sports Hall of Fame. So he's uh, he's Mister Hall of Fame. But uh, as I said, he was at Clemson for many many years. He's the winnest, winningest head coach in ACC history with 685 wins. He had 11 ACC titles when he was at Clemson and seven elite eighth eight berths in the tournament. And he produced 38 All-Americans on his teams. Three-time National Coach of the Year. Um, he's also had positions where he was the director of the Southeast uh, Asian Tennis Federation and also coached the U.S. Junior Davis Cup team. Um, he served as the director of coaching with the the, uh, uh, the very well-run and, and prodigious JTCC in College Park, Maryland as well. Um, but... Outside of that, uh, if that wasn't enough, he's authored six tennis books. All really, really good books. So
0: Chuck is 72 years young. He's five years older than I am. We go back where he started with All-American Sports uh, before I did. Harry Hopman, Mr. Harry Hopman, and Nick Politeri worked at the same tennis facility. Uh, that was his beginning days. He's one of our pillars, uh, Mr. Hopman. It's great to talk to someone like Chuck who spent so many years with him. Uh, his book, Total Tennis Training, we used uh, with the Tyler Junior College Tennis Tech Curriculum. He's a great speaker. I've made a list of uh, twenty questions. I know you have a list. Actually, we don't even need to have a list of questions. We mm-hmm. can just listen to him. Mm-hmm. He needs to be heard for the betterment of tennis. Um, you know, he really uh, he's been around forever, and you know his message on what we need to do to make tennis better in America. Um, But it'll be fine. So Mm -hmm. I think it'd be an honor to have him on more than one time. But let me give Chuck Creasy a call. And dialing one. Hello, Chuck.
2: Brandon. Yes. Brandon. Brandon
0: Brandon and I are pumped to ask you questions. Have our audience get the chance to listen to you. We just went through an intro. Um,
1: Okay. A rather lengthy intro, understandably. Yeah, we just going through the Hall of Fame's here and took a little bit of time, but um, really, really, okay. great, really great to have you on. Um, as you know, I was many years uh, just a few few miles down the road, and uh, and and now obviously at Citadel in Charleston, you've you've obviously gotten comfortable in the South Carolina area. Huh? It's a beautiful, beautiful part of the world.
3: Yeah, my the family's here. Well, I mean, my wife's family, and we came down to Charleston uh, initially. Uh, I was pretty much done with coaching, Steve, uh, coaching college, not coaching, but coaching college. I Not just that it run its course or, you know, I'm, you know, out of it there, but it, you know, the college arena has changed so much. There's just, oh, golly, you, it really has gone in a direction that I did not feel like I could not be successful. It wasn't about being successful, but the same impact the teaching impact nor the coaching impact on the on the players or the kids and and it just is it, it, it hits sort of a they just dumbed it down you know to tell the truth but my wife was in charleston uh she's from charleston and her mother was here so after clemson went to thailand for a couple years and uh, up to college park and uh we're going to come down here and do you know just see if i could find some kids to work with or you know just keep working with my kids my own children but um of course citadel opened up and that's it's a fantastic place it's gonna be 180 years old now 1842 it'll be 180 years ago it started wow so how many years
0: you're you're clemson how many years and now it's a citadel 33
3: 33 and this is number nine but i was assistant coach uh Tennessee Tech for a year and then a track assistant track coach for a semester. And, uh, so I'm counting this as this is like year 44 in college work. So it's, it's really, no, I'm going to try to keep it rolling. Let's go
0: back to the Uh, beginning though. Indiana basketball country. Uh,
3: how'd you get going?
0: Tell us, tell listeners how you got going in tennis.
3: Well, I, Steve, uh, basketball is basketball in Indiana and we didn't have you know, it's funny with my team, uh, right now, we're we're doing some training here before the season started and we're talking about basketball and how, why it was so good in Indiana and Kentucky, but you didn't have the doggone class system, which I could talk about forever. You know, uh, in Indiana, you had six. we had 600 teams in high school, I played high school basketball, of course. It was just, uh, you know, he lived in uh, playing basketball and, um, you know, so you had 600 teams in the same tournament, you know, that movie Hoosiers, they, you know, they didn't show that, you know, they showed the sectional and the regional games, but they, you know, they had sectional, regional, semi-state and state finals. You had 600 teams. Mm-hmm. Holy cow. During those four weekends, it was, it was something else. And, uh, but, you know, you grew up dreaming of being able to play a great high school basketball team. And that was my dream. But, the uh, long story short is, my basketball coach in eighth grade or ninth grade was saying, "Hey, do tennis in the summertime if you can." My buddies used to go over and play football, play baseball, hang out at the tennis uh, right next to the tennis courts there, and and it took me a while to try, but I I just started going over there, and and uh, I, I wrote this down. One of the things I wrote down I want to talk about a little bit later, but I played tennis when I was a kid growing up, not for points. Not for rankings, but I got three drugs at the park. You want to hear about the three drugs, Steve?
0: No.
3: I got dopamine, adrenaline, and endorphins. Okay. The tenant, the playing tennis was unlike anything. When you hit a tennis ball in the middle of the racket with, uh, um, you know, with with those old wood rackets, it 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 felt like hitting a fifteen foot jump shot. Mm-hmm. You know, it just uh, sends you know, you just got a buzz from it, and you would stay on the backboard forever. One of the things, and I don't want to go into this too long, but one of the things that's messed us up in the kids wanting to play is that we've lost the dopamine rush. The, the racket technology has made it to where kids don't go to the backboard. You used to go to the backboard and hit for hours trying to find a sweet spot, and it was like if you hit if you hit the sweet spot, you got this great buzz. Mm. And if you missed it, you just, oh, tennis is hard. I better keep trying. I better keep trying. But now, because you can hit it so much easier with these big old rackets and the technology, the kids, uh, they'll hit five or six, and they get mad when they miss. You know, if they hit it good, it's what they're supposed to. But uh, dopamine and adrenaline from competing and the endorphins from training, because I was – you know, I played all the sports. We we're back then, you know, you and I both know we played every sport they had at schools. You know, it was basketball, the football, the basketball, the, you know, baseball in the summers. And, you know, and, and then the tennis is, uh, you know, I just lived, lived at the park for, you know, four or five summers all summer. I remember. You know, you uh, just go down and play everybody.
0: Sampras was asked, um, I think his oldest son is Christian. And he was asked if he, if he played tennis, what would be one tip? And he said, play with a wooden racket till you're 13. Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, you you, you you were actually, and now, you know what I've done with my daughter? You know, I've got six children. But with my daughter, my, my I've taught them all how to play. But my youngest daughter loves it. And and she's just turned 14. But I, she's using an old Wilson Pro Staff, you know, like a nine, 85 five nine, the old Sampras racket. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got uh, got one guy to get me one on eBay, and then we had one. Actually, one of my former players, Frank Salazar, we had one of his old rackets from about twenty years ago, and, and I strung him up. And she loves it because she can feel the ball. Mm-hmm. She can, and she wants to. She wants to find that sweet spot. And uh, we're really missing out because we let the manufacturers sort of dictate that. And I, I used to. Have a saying. I said, you know, easy to pick up becomes easy to put down. Hard to pick up is hard to put down, and we messed up that uh, that part of it. And I, I don't. It's a different topic, Steve. But um, you know, in senior tennis, I, I think the whole key is that they've screwed it up by the t- racket technology. You know, you know, and there's, you know, that's another subject I could talk about here in a minute. Yeah. But you know, we've lost all our seniors to uh, pickleball. Pickleball is easy to pick up. It's going to be easy to put down. A bit of tennis, uh, the ball striking overcomes the movement. Now with the technology, it's so fast. I always tell people, it's uh, you know that. Well, you and I can't play singles anymore. I can't play singles anymore. It's too fast. But it's sort of like trying to dance the waltz to on disco music or something. It's it's out of sync, you know. But they didn't consider the, the symmetry of the whole thing. Yeah, and they only have the ball. You have the ball, the court, and the racket. But anyhow, wood rackets. Senior citizens would use those, or you know, they need a gold standard ball. I, I even I've called down to USTA, and I've, uh, I, one of my former players that's down there. I ask him, please have whoever's in charge of senior tennis call me. Pickleball's killing us with our seniors, but it's you know they're not going to change the rackets, and the kid they look. Steve Seniors are not going to use the green kitty ball. They're not. It's like if I went play basketball right now and we got a ten foot hoop and an eight foot hoop. I don't care that I can't jump anymore. I'm gonna shoot at the ten foot hoop. Right. So senior citizens need to have like a gold standard ball or something. What, what that, do you mean you know, what, they
0: could, you elaborate on that? What do you mean by a gold standard ball? Well
3: well what I mean is they could use the same thing that the pressure could be dumbed down a little bit. And they could have more, a higher felt or something would go slower. So where they could have, have there would be symmetry in the game. Mm. But it, it, seniors are not going to use that green dot ball. You know, they're not going to use the kitty ball.
0: Right. Remember the, in, in the 80s for a few years, there was the rally ball. It was 7% Seven yeah, yeah, percent yeah. bigger. I thought it was yeah. a great training tool. And I thought the only, neg- great training tool. O- only negative was it wouldn't go through a ball machine.
3: Right, well, you're right. It was a great training tool, and it was novel, and people got scared of them. You remember the first year Prince Rackets came out, everybody was scared of them, thought it was sort of a weird idea back about 1980. But I think uh, that might have caught on. But I, I think the whole key is to, if anybody's listening out there from USTA, guys, get a gold standard ball. Get a ball that moves slower for the seniors and that's not embarrassing to use. The last thing. That somebody wants to use is the kitty kitty ball green ball, you know, and uh, it's okay for. I teach with green dot balls, good good teaching tool. Sure. They sure. screwed it up by mandating it though, you know. It, screwed it up.
1: I I really but, like the I really like hearing you talk about the rackets and and I think the gold standard idea with the ball is I haven't heard that before, but I.
3: I it's all it. hey, Steve. It's all about the dopamine rush. Okay, it's all about, it's no no different than going to the driving range. Anybody that's ever been there, I mean, I <laughs> I, I got old Ben Hogan persimmon woods. <laughs> so if I hit a ball on the screws, I would rather have that feeling than have a big berth and be smacking them 30 yards further. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and people play sports. It's not for adding up points. They play a lot of it for the aesthetic part of the, the dopamine rush they get. And we screwed that up, you know. So anyhow.
0: Chuck, with the gold standard, uh Mr. Hopman was the gold standard. Uh in our intro, in our intro, I mentioned that uh, I'm a few years younger than you and I was with All American Sports a few years after you. I wasn't I wasn't at Amherst. I was at Amherst when Riney Meyer, the fifth grade teacher from yeah. Wisconsin, was still running yeah. the place and it was fun to be around him.
3: Yep. Yeah. He chewed my butt pretty good the first day. <laughs> but he was, You have to tell us about that, but he was the
0: go-between between Mr. Hopman and Ball Terry. Yeah. I mean, from a historical standpoint, I think people would be shocked to think they worked at the same facility where Nick was in charge of adults and Mr. Hopman in charge of juniors. Tell us a little well, about your days with Mr. Hopman.
3: You know, it's just by chance. I'm so lucky. See, I, well, after college, I want to go back and be a high school basketball coach in Indiana. I went back and asked, put in applications. I was Got a job at a hospital for $70 a week. Uh, I was going to type up orders, and my college coach said, Hey, Chuck, you want to go out to Mr. Harry Hopman? And he is running a camp in Massachusetts. You want to go there? I said, heck, yeah. I got $70 a week to work up there. And I was a college graduate in 1972 and went up there, and it was the Harry Hopman slash Nick Volatari camp, if you could believe those two guys working together. But uh, Mr. Hopman, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I flew up, and I went, I got off the plane, took a bus. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going. I went in this building. I just laid on a couch and fell asleep and spent the night on a couch. In the morning, all these people were around there. And Mr. Hopman walks in there and said, hey, son, where are you doing? And I told him, my coach called me. He said, okay. It was just by chance I got to work in his part of the camp. And, uh, of course, the legend that he is of 20 Davis Cup titles and all that it was like getting to you know go to a basketball ca- coach uh, camp that Johnny Wood was running or something you know and and so I just hung on everything everything and uh, 70 bucks a week and uh, I was glad to just be able to work there so uh, I just you know save a little bit of time I tell you the story how I got a tennis coach in here uh, had I not worked for mr. Hopman, I had never been a tennis coach I got into because he was just like most of my basketball coaches. He was, a. I had a was lucky in high school I had a guy named John McLeod as JV basketball coach in 1965. He ended up coaching Phoenix Suns, New York Knicks. He went to Oklahoma after, uh, I had, uh, uh, I've worked, uh, you know, as a sophomore, sophomore in high school. And then, um, my basketball coaches were tremendous and they, you learned how to work. And Mr. Hopman was all about doing the right thing. He was tough. He worked us all day. And, you know, and, um, so I'd worked there like four or five weeks. It was 10 week camp and it was hot all day long. he would work from eight till five and just glad to be teaching tennis and making 70 bucks a week. And Mr. Hopman came up to me at the end of this, uh, one day, and he said, "Chuckle, oh boy, chuckle, oh boy. I want you to get it with my wife, Lucy." So, I mean, that's a tough job. But a couple of my buddies go, "Oh boy, you got a you got the tough one this afternoon." <laughs> and, but I, I, I went over on these old. Remember the old clay courts there at Amherst? Yeah, the red clay. Courts. I mean, I got climbed, climbed the fence, get balls back on her rack, and I hit with her for an hour. And afterwards, here's the the thing. But for twenty dollars, I would have never been a coach, you know, or coached in college. So I, Mr. Hoffman comes up afterwards. He pulls out this billful, Chuckle boy, Chuckle boy. And he's tried to shove 20 bucks in my face. Now, well, I don't know if this is good children listening to this, but $20 back in 1972 was 80 beers. Okay. <laughs> Red solo cup was a quarter of beer. <laughs> you can remember that. So, and anyhow, and then I'm making eighty bucks a week. And he said, "We always give our pro." He called me a pro, and I did my Midwest shuffle. Oh, Mister Hopman shucks! I can't take any money. Thank you, sir. Thank you for you know giving me the honor. You know, thank you, sir. And I walked away and said, "You idiot!" God, it's twenty bucks. Well, then the next week he did the same exact thing. He he tried to shove twenty bucks on me, and I didn't take same same thing. Well, that night I had this note on my door, go see Hop. I go, oh my God, I'm getting fired. Lucy didn't like her lesson. Oh my God, I'm going to get fired. And I was just shaking, walking in there. I walked in his room. And he said, Chuckle boy, Chuckle boy, I want you to come work for me or work with us down at Port Washington in New York. I go, whoa, it was a test. He did that stuff all the time. Wow. He, he used to he used to put money by kids' beds sometimes just to attempt to see if they were bad or I mean, would steal. We saw him chase a kid. We saw him, uh, there was this kid checking out on a Saturday. We saw him, Mr. Hopman go all the way down the hill and right in front of his parents shame him. He turned the, the, his pillowcase upside down, about 50 balls rolled out. I mean, he... He knew that the kid was trying to steal ball. One kid tried to get out of running, and we knew it, and we snuck back and tried to get him. Mr. Hopman comes out of the kid's closet. He had been in there waiting for the kid to sneak back. I mean, it was he was unbelievable like that, but he was just testing me and to see if I wanted money or to work with people. And So I went there, and I, I got a fantastic year. I got 10 years of experience in one year. You know, working with his fantastic staff that he had there at Port Washington. And they had all those kids there that were there training. And he trained them just like basketball. He trained them like athletes. And that's, that's what, he's not like, yeah. yeah. I was going to say, Tony, not like
0: Tony Palifax yeah. and Matt. Tony
3: Palifax. McEnroe. Rod, Rod Brent. Matt, well, yeah, he, McEnroe's just a little kid. He was right. like 13 or 14. And they had the Gerolitis and, all those people, you know, and, they, and nobody at that time had seen seen this. Wow, this was this was the hot spot for all the players, and uh, you know, and and uh, just uh, it was a fantastic opportunity to, to dive in and learn. You made made a lot of mistakes. He never held the mistakes against you. He would always go up and say, "Hey, you might try to do this. You might try to do that." But um, you know, so I would, but for twenty bucks, I know for a fact if I'd taken the twenty bucks, I might have got my eighty beers, and, and <laughs> but, but 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 you know, not. Hey, I don't want people to think I drink eighty beers ever, you know. But 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 you 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 know what I'm talking about. I know for a fact that had never been in tennis, you know. And then when I went to Clemson, I went back to my masters at Tennessee Tech, and I almost got the job there, and I didn't get it. And I was pretty down in the dumps about it. But I got a call out of the blue from Clemson, um, you know, about six months after I finished my master's to get an interview. And Mr. Hopman had written me a very nice uh, letter of reference when they checked and stuff. You know, Mm -hmm. he just said, you know, said I was a hard worker and, you know, and stuff. And so uh, to really help me get started, you know, and I got that job when I was twenty. I was only 25, and they hired me at Clemson. But the athletic director from Tennessee Tech had been at Clemson; he had been a, a, a former coach there. And uh, that's another story too. I mean, I, I didn't get the job, at Tennessee Tech, and I was really upset. And last day I was there, I was walking across campus, and I was really upset. I'm not; I'm going to have to just go figure it out. And um, I said, "I'm the biggest." in the world to think anything else but gratitude for the five and a half years of education I got from hitting a fuzzy ball over the net. I went up, turned around. I'd just taken my last exam. I was leaving. I turned around and walked back to the athletic department, walked up and asked Coach Wade. Don Wade was the guy's name. I said, Coach Wade, if the job ever opens, 1999, I would just do anything to be able to coach at my alma mater, Tennessee Tech. And then I get this job, you know, and then I got a call out of the blue, too. So, you know, and uh, so I got the I got the job interview at Clemson at 25 and went to work. I remember and back then. Go ahead. Still hit.
0: I was going to say shortly after that, you weren't there very long, but the late Eugene Scott had his uh, Tennis Weekly and you were on the cover. And you were really, you were really known for that first week of practice. So that must have had a hot minute. Well,
3: no, you. you know, I had I got my master's in. Uh, health and fitness, kinesiology and exercise, uh, you know, science, what they call it now, physiology, exercise. But I got really into the training part of it. Back then, I hate to say it, but tennis was, I hate to say it was more of a country club sport. But people weren't training all that hard. But i have been under Mr. Hoffman, and I did my master's and you know, in kinesiology and all that stuff. And I said, look, man. And so I started training when I went to Clinton clemson and this is the truth i knew i was going to screw up and they'd fire me within two years because i said i you know i come on i was 25 years old my backup plan i would go work on my phd or something at tennessee but the bottom line is i just said well i know one thing johnny wooden's book they call me coach was the first book i read and he said that he prided himself. They knew that they'd be the best-conditioned team in the country. And I said, "Well, we'll be the best-conditioned tennis team." So we started just training, and it was it, things fell into place. We—I uh, had 50 kids trying to walk on the first three weeks while I was there. You know, I, I had open tryouts, and uh, all 50 kids. I said, "We'll meet at the track. No rackets. We go to the track for the first three weeks." And we would just run. We'd, we'd run. And pretty soon we were down to about nine or ten players. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, we had some great stories from those people who were the lone survivors at first. So the kids all started calling it morning madness, and it became a tradition. And to this day, 44 years of coaching, 42 years of being a head coach, I've never cut a player if they made their mile time. Well, excuse me. They started making me cut players at Clemson. This is one of the things that pushed me out of that daggone situation of uh, D1 tennis. It's really aggravating. But I never cut We had 26 players at one time. I had three teams. We had three schedules. All and I had Kent Kinnear, two-time All-American, started out number 14 on the team. And he played 37 Grand Slams. Richard Matachevsky got up to 49 in the world, and he was like 13 on the team, did not make the top six until halfway through his freshman year, and he, he became a two-time All-American. But the bottom line, we had a, a feeder system where the, the kids would work really hard on what I call the work team, and if they got to the top of the work team, they got on the white team, and then they got on the orange team. And had three schedules. Why well, never cut anybody if they made their milestone? Mm-hmm. But then they had to this, uh, stay this on I hate, proportionality and gender equity. And I'll make this statement before this gets taken out of context. Title IX was a very, very great rule that very, very, very poorly implemented. It was never meant to crush men's sports. And you know you can, but and anybody that is in the college sports world knows that if my daughters, your daughters, everybody's daughters in USA needs opportunity to play sports, you know I'll be the first one to say that. But the way they implemented it with this proportionality thing, Steve, it just crushed. It. So I was only allowed to keep ten players about my last five or six years at Clemson actually the last 10 years. And I was trying to make them managers and things I couldn't do. (laughs) But it it drove me crazy because you cannot recruit a championship team unless you you know what's happening. Everybody just goes overseas, man. It's a mess. But instead of developing players, we're just importing players or bringing them in, pushing them out there. But uh, and then... Of course, in college, it's the most frustrating thing. With early '90s, the the dumbed down scheduling. We went to twenty hour work week, and then and then twenty five matches a year, and it's laughable. Mm. I have a very good friend who whose son played one hundred and twenty matches last year, and he's fourteen years old. You know, <laughs> and, and we're playing twenty five. It's laughable for college. It's laughable. So it's, it's just a big dumb down. So you you really, my, most coaches figured out is you do not have an amount of matches that you need to get players better. And they don't allow you to practice enough. At College Park, our kids who were 16 were playing twice, practicing twice as hard as the local college team. You know, so, and I want to make a point about that so people don't understand, can understand that. When they came out and they put those restrictions on there, the the dumb down was very political from the standpoint of some of the schools who had already, who who didn't work as hard. You know, I can go ahead and say, and maybe I'll make some people mad out there, but the Ivy League schools, okay? They're only allowed 18 matches. You know, they're always into academics. Well, they never developed any top players either. But they got basically. They were in a dumbed-down mode in a few of the other conference uh, schools, so they dumbed the thing down. Well, I asked the commissioner of our conference. I said, is this about academics? And he said, absolutely. I said, okay, so why don't we do this? Instead of restricting all of the time that you can practice, if your team has a 3.1 grade point average, or make it a 3.4 grade point average, let us do anything we want to do. Let us, you know, if do not penalize high achieving people, and it just is and infuriates you because I had all of these kids making almost every one of my players would graduate, and no, but no coach in tennis wants their players to flunk out or something like that. Tennis players are smart, so college is not a good arena for training players anymore, and it's really really frustrating. That's the biggest thing that. After thirty-three years, I told the AD, I just said, "Look, you have to go overseas and recruit players, and just try to find them anywhere." But this is not a developmental situation anymore. College is not. Yeah. It's it's really very very frustrating, you know. So, and I I don't want to get to stay on a soapbox about that, but but uh, people need to know if you have if you're an American parent and you want your child to go to college and play look title nine was for usa women to get to go to college and play college wasn't it wasn't it set up as a constitutional law for for american girls to play no for sure you know so yeah and my daughter is going to be a pretty good tennis player but she probably, it's going to be very, very hard for her to get a scholarship or get any financial aid to go to college unless if you're top 30 in the country. And uh, if you're number five in the state of uh, Kentucky or Tennessee or South Carolina, That you know, in any other sport, you would be able to get a pretty good scholarship, but not in the sport of tennis. Because 80% are going to international students. I'm not against international students. But I sure do think it should be proportioned properly to where Americans are the first that that are looked at. Mm. So we've got a lot of issues like that. But the dumb down, and I'll leave it with this because I don't want to go on and on. 1986, we had 41 USA-born players that went to college and made it to the top 100 in the world in the ATP wow. and the and the WTA. 41. You know we have four today. Four. Mm-hmm. You can name them, right? Isner went to Georgia. Stevie Johnson went to Southern Cal. Tennis Sangren, who's a late bloomer. <clears throat> Do we have any other boys USA born? It's ridiculous. We don't. But think. Compare that to baseball. Baseball has sixty-four ball games. The major leagues are packed with NCAA former college baseball players you know ours is our very best players die on the vine because there's there it's just not if the incentives are not right there you know so we've got to go to it from the standpoint of rewarding the right behavior in other words if somebody is a 3.1 student let them do whatever they want to do you know let let them do that let them you know we can let them have 40 matches if they need you know, it, it's just not, it's not right, Chocolate. but we need to be rewarding. Yeah. You know? I told you, US... go, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'll go You go first. The, the USDA I told them, look, guys, why don't you take here, make it in the city. First of all, we need an USTA could do their all, all, an all American team, you know, like they're all Americans. Well, Kodak used to do it all Americans, right? Football. Why don't the USDA do an all American, all American team? I'm not against foreigners, but most of all Americans are all international students. You know, and now secondly, I told this guy, I said, USDA ought to put a million dollars out, give 200,000 bucks to five different coaches, five best coaches in America that have 80% or more American players. Okay, wouldn't that, so if I've got some guy from South America, I got my guy from Kentucky. Uh-huh. Well, wait a minute. Let's 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 focus on this guy. All it would take is five coaches get two hundred thousand extra dollars for the program or for them. But we need to incentivize the behavior that we need instead of, you know, everybody saying, "Oh, let's penalize." We don't want to penalize players. We don't want to. You can't make a two-player restriction and all that stuff like they, they every country in the world does that with their sports like soccer and things, two foreign players. But we're we just we loaded. Uh, it's just it, right now it's really it, it's something I could not hang with anymore, Steve, and that's why I got out of it in two thousand eight. But at the Citadel, I have a little different ball game, and it's it's pretty cool to be able to you know, coach, coach
0: at this place. Chuck, Could you elaborate upon the, I think it's 21, uh, 21 reasons that uh, weakens character to shorten the scoring systems?
3: Well, I can, I can. Uh, Don't give us
0: all 21. I've, I've got, I, I could put no, that on our Facebook.
3: I'm I've, I've uh, battling. You know. I've been battling for several years about, I was in the room. In 1979, 78, in Corpus Christi, Texas, when there were 36 coaches in there, and we were going to try no ad for one year, okay? And I uh, said, okay, we'll give it a try. Well, it ended up, and through the 80s, we used it, and uh, nobody knew much about it, but it st- I started noticing that our best players were taking hits, in other words, Players, I'll give you a recent example. Stevie Johnson, his father was interviewed, you know, before he passed away. And he was asked, if Steve, would Stevie have gone undefeated for two years if it had no ad? And he said, no, absolutely, he would have lost 10 or 10 to 20 matches. Mm-hmm. You know, because it promotes randomness. Number one, it promotes randomness. And there's a lot of reason for that. First of all, the bastardization of our scoring system and the dumbing down and the bas- I can call it bastardization. I don't think that's... The dumbing down of our scoring system is one of the worst things we could ever be doing. I told my players I'm having to work with them to play in a little NOAD. I never play NOAD in the fall anymore because I want our kids to learn how to play tennis. Tennis is very sophisticated chess and, and you you have to learn how to... You know, you, you have so many fluctuations in the pressure, but but the most obvious things, first of all, it, I wanted to make the point, it's never really caught on yet, has it? And they've been trying to push it down our throats. Now, and I don't want to make a long story short, I'm going to come back to it, but I absolutely believe it's because of the gambling industry. They want to promote randomness. It's very, very frustrating that they are promoting something that makes our sport more random. Tennis is so consistent that if you work hard and you develop skill sets with a slice backhand or, you know, better, better technical skills, it's a very, very fair system. The better player is going to win. But with no ad scoring or the, the tiebreaker for the third set, holy cow. I call it the not-so-super-tiebreaker because it really promotes randomness as well. And why do they want randomness? And, of course, I i really believe it has a lot to do. They talk so much about the gambling industry. And, uh, you know, but its it has to do with people wanting to promote randomness. So to, very quickly, a couple things for the listeners to listen about, no ad beside it being random results. Game point is now an eight-point swing. You have one point determines an eight-point swing. And um, and I always I can go in, a, in the back door here and say that if you were a basketball player and basketball coach, would it be fair on the opponent's missed shot for you to get 16 points on one shot? And people go, whoa, what? Well, basketball is two points. And we have a sport where if you miss, the other team gets, the other guy gets a point. So it's always a two-point swing. Mm-hmm. Well, basketball would then, if, if the missed shot counted two for the other other person, the other team, it would automatically be a four-point swing. Well, tennis on game point, it's an eight-point swing. It's, everybody sees it very obviously at four two if you win that game point you go up five two Or it's four three It's but and everybody sees it at four four is four four if steve if you get a let court and go up five four well you need four and i now, i need twelve but the first game of the match if you go up by 1-0 lead it's going to take me eight points to get ahead the one game that I was going to be ahead if I won that lead court. So consequently, players have learned that if you win three points at the right time on game point, instead of it being 3-3, three, three, you win 6-0. Oh. So the cheating is unbelievable. The cheating is in junior tennis, we're teaching our kids to work scoring system more than working on their slice backhand or their kick serves, and then more than the skill set. Okay, so it doesn't, it promotes randomness, it's an eight-point swing, but basketball would be a 16-point swing on one shot. That's ridiculous to think about that. But we have a sport of, of um, you know, an uh, immediate offense and defense and posture, two-point swings always. And so, with, with that, also, the war zones are critical. I always talk about the war zones, and my son plays baseball. So, In in baseball, when you get to a full count, you always have a batter that is fouling a pitch off or taking a ball, fouling pitch off, taking a ball, and he's always trying to get on base. Well, you have that extended at-bat. Not only does the drama intensify, you also grind down the pitcher. Everybody knows that if you get the pitcher to make extra pitches every inning, he only lasts four and three innings instead of five. When in tennis, when you're playing John Isner, and if, if, if Isner only has to make a maximum of seven serves every game, well, you're never going to grind down John Isner. Mm. against. The, so it eliminates the next reason. It eliminates the small guy. It eliminates the person who's the body puncher. Tennis is more like middleweight boxing. You've got to get these body punches in for the first five rounds and then somewhere into the fifth, sixth rounds the guy starts bending over, you know, and and tennis is like that. You have to deliver the body punches and get these tough, long rallies and, you know, do the body punches, and that's how you break down big servers. And then, you know, I've got so many more, but the one thing I wanted to bring up is the big thing that people who promote no ad scoring, and they try to do this, and it's such a red herring, it's such a bunch of bunk, that people get excited about watching it, they say, "Oh, they added excitement." And here's the statement: excitement dwindles with each occurrence, but drama intensifies with each denial. Nobody could ever say that no ad scoring would be better when they watch Schwarzman in Nadal, and what was that quarterfinals at the French? Was it? Mm-hmm. You know, oh my gosh, the third set was unbelievable. The drama. Even um, who was a Djokovic and that American kid. that I'll give you a perfect example of what tennis is about. Who was the American, big old tall kid that had a good serve, that had a good run, lost Djokovic, like the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open. Well, the kid had a, yeah, 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 yeah. So he was serving that game at, I think, 3-2 to try to catch up. Or was it two, was it it was uh, three to two or two to three, and they had a long, long game, and he finally held serve. He finally, finally held serve, but then he went away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it was he was done. Nobody sees that. The underlying tone in tennis. The underlying tone in tennis. I always used to ask my players, when did you win the match before you won the match? They go, oh, Okay, okay, coach, let's see. It was uh one, two. Second set, one, two, fifteen, thirty, we had that really, really long point, and then we had that long, long game, and I had remember, coach, I had that like fourteen point game, and then the kid just started checking out and but but see the no ad allows random results because you could you beat a person four times into submission. It's like knocking the guy down you know in a, in a you know in a in a boxing match. And then you let him have five minutes (laughs) to get water and refresh himself. Now, now you, uh, I I tell the guys, you know, the thing bad thing about Steve about that tiebreaker for the third set, nobody understands is tell him tennis is like wrestling for, you know, you wrestle for five rounds and then round six, you say, okay, we're going to box for 30 seconds to see who wins. It's completely different. It's completely different. So, one last thing, and I'll get off of that, but I've got 21 reasons why. Um, no ad is bad, but here, here is, look, we've had this scoring system for 152 years now. 152 years. Then all of a sudden, oh, now, now we're smart. We figured this out that this is better. It's going to bring in audiences and something. No, it's not. It's for the gambling industry. It's to promote randomness. And, and, and it's it's really just such a cut on our sport it's like making having arena football replace normal football it's it's um so our, our play our, our coach the people who are doing this too I don't know if Steve if they just don't understand tennis deep enough or if there's some they've got something in the game or why why they're doing it So I'm just so angry about it, you know, because my players aren't learning how to play tennis to the depth that they need to. They're they're learning how to play checkers, not chess.
0: Well, I think a lot of people are making the decisions. They haven't been in the trenches. Now, if you're working with kids, we're working with kids to get them really physically fit, and then you take fitness really almost out of it when you say, let's play a 10-point tiebreaker. Hmm. I think people, people in other countries are laughing at us. Uh, and then I think the biggest one is uh, college doubles being upset uh, playing, playing to six. <laughs> yeah, That's not even divisible you know, by I, four.
3: Steve, I'm not going to tell you what I, how I laugh about we'll play that six-game set for college doubles, and it's laughable. You know, we lost, we had to play Florida State, I think, of some, let's see, when was it? Or you know our team Citadel, we compete really well. But if we got to play Tennessee, Florida State, South Carolina, we get smacked some in the doubles. I went over and told the ref, "Yeah, huh? listen, we we need a long break. You know that? Oh my gosh, that match lasted 14 minutes. My guys are so so tired. They're just worn out. I got three guys cramping over here. Oh my gosh, <laughs> it's it's laughable. You know, it's laughable. People come to the college match." To see it, and, you know, it's halfway done. And they're saying, no, we're going to get it on TV. Well, what a crock of malarkey and red herring that is. That is a red herring to lead us in some other direction. Because here's the point. I always said, well, if you put us on TV, we'll get out there and do hula hoops. We'll do anything you want. But we're never going to be on TV. If you have two teams, you know, so you have two, you have one out of a 1,000 matches that are played on TV. Okay, well, they haven't played no ad on TV. But don't screw up the whole sport because mm. you're just trying to get more publicity. And that's where again the dopamine rush and the honoring the sport and history and heritage, we have just done such a poor job of protecting our sport.
0: I think parents you know, are I, parents are paying more money and they're taking their children across the country, a big country thing broke wide and and their entry fees are going up, and the amount of Steve, play- playing time is going down.
3: Steve, Steve, this is a good one. Okay, so my friend went to a tournament with his son. He said, we spent $1,200. And it, it rained one day, so we spent $1,200 on hotel rooms and everything else like that. Okay? He said, my son got—then they abbreviated the matches. Okay? So he said, I figured out that my son, he only played 48 games. Okay, so you divide 48 into, uh, you know where I'm going. <laughs> you know you know where I'm going. I said, uh, let's see, it costs you $24 a game for your son to play a game. Oh, you play no ad. Wait a minute, $24 divided by maximum of seven points. It costs your son, or it costs you $3 a point. Jeez. $3 a point max. Okay, but, but see, I don't. You know, look, I teach my daughter, so I don't have to pay for lessons or something, but I can't afford my daughter to go around. And, and so they say they want tennis to be the universal sport or something, but then they just crunch you with. And then and, and these people who are running tournaments they say, well, we need 38 referees because there's so much cheating going on. And now the referees got unions, and so the referees. Are, are, are charging a bundle of money, and then the uh, USTA has a the thing called, a, what was it, the, they call it a tournament tax, or a player tax. They tack on three or four dollars. So, you know, this is not what it's meant to be. Okay, so I did want to say something, if I got a chance to, I think you, you had written down there, you know, if I was commissioner or something of tennis, first thing I'd do is I Make everything be bottom up instead of top down management. Top down management does not inspire. You know, it. it we're so organized that we don't inspire. Look, grassroots stuff starts with in 500 different ways in our 50 states, and we have little communities everywhere that started tennis tournaments and they ran them. Now that the USTA, in their infinite wisdom, is doing top-down management, they have crushed some of the the tournaments of tradition, Steve, that that we have had for years and years. In the state of South Carolina, we had a little town called Belton, South Carolina. It's got like a 70-year history of having junior tournaments there. The biggest, if you ask any kid growing up, would you rather win uh, be number one in the state of South Carolina, or win Belton hands down. I'd like to be a Belton champion. Do you know that tournament has been reduced now to like a level I don't know, level four blue group. I, I don't even understand the stuff. You know, so it, it, it's really it's awful. So that tournament now is almost out of or gone. It's almost gone. But it's not just Belton, it's the Crackerland. They used to have a thing called a Pepsi sixteen. They used to, I mean the different they, the Gator Bowl down there in jackson they they had tournaments. Tim Wilkinson had the best statement. He said, kids do not play for points. Kids play for rivalries and tournaments of heritage. Mm-hmm. Tim said, if I lost to somebody, I would practice for a year to try to get my get a win back over the person just such a competitor. And he said, but the tournaments of heritage, he would do anything. If you ask Steve, if you ask any kid in America, any boy, would you rather be number one in the United States or win Kalamazoo? What do you think the answer would be? Win Kalamazoo. Win count. Cal- any player in the world, would you rather be number one in the world or win Wimbledon? Okay. So we're, we're screwing it up so bad by taking these tournaments of heritage away. And, uh, so, you know, the incentives, it's the no ads scoring It's just preposterous. It's it's just a blemish, you know, like, again, why haven't other countries gone that way? They laugh at us. But we're, I guess, you know, it, it's, I so I, I would argue. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry.
0: No, I'm sorry. I was just going to say it was sad with the UTR where kids are so obsessed by that. I know Dave Howell yeah. started it, copied a lot of. It was a, right. a spinoff of the French system. Dave Fish really promoted it. right. right. The, the UTR was to try to have more matches with less expense. Okay. And that's,
3: that's so I high. talked to Dave Fish when I was still coaching at Clemson. I talked to him and I said, we actually need a rating system, I said, because I said, ideally you'd rank about 50 kids. We had kids who were ranked 358. The worst thing was when we they started using computers and They'd rank 300 kids, and you'd have a kid call and say, Coach, I moved up from number 351 to number 258 or something. And you didn't want to tell the kid, well, that's good. You made 100 jumps, but still, that's not good enough. So, you know, they used to use computers to measure every step of the way. I used to say you keep fog on top of the mountain until the kids are too high up to turn back. You never show kids how hard something is when they're going up the mountain you kill their dreams if you do that. Mm. So the UTR, it was a good idea. I thought I felt a rating system would be good from about 50 to about 350 or something like that. You could have a rating system. You need a ranking system for the top 50 or so. So you know who actually is the best player. I think you always need that. So Dave Howe's brilliant man in Daryl Cummins up there in Virginia beach hats off to those guys there. Uh, they, uh, uh, um, Daryl and Dave, uh, and, uh, what's his name? Um, well, fish was there. He he did a lot, but Daryl and those guys, um, were primarily trying to service a high school program and trying to get more energy going with different things. It was a brilliant idea. And they, They perfected it. But here's the point. This is the statement. UTR is great for an individual kid to look and see where he is, but they should never let him look at anybody else's because he sizes it up. It is the worst thing in the world for kids to go to a tournament and say, oh, my gosh, I'm a 9.1 here, and I'm playing a 9.8, and there's just no chance that I have to win that, or I'm playing an 8.5. And I'll have a bad, bad loss. I mean, it's just preposterous that they're doing this. It's Well, it's, it's an unintended consequence, Steve. They, uh, I don't think they thought about that. But they need to shut down your vision, view of anybody else's UTR. You know, I don't know any of my guys' UTRs on the team. I don't know any of the UTRs from the people I recruit. I just... <laughs> I just know if the guy's person's good or not. If they're a good human being and they work hard and they've got good fundamentals, they're going to get better. But this UTR is my friend, Andy (laughs) Johnson. This is a great one. So Andy's got a son that's doing really, really well in tennis. Andy coached at Clemson for 17 years. He had six ACC titles, and he ended up on the football staff, actually. He called me and said, Chuck, Chuck, do you you know what this UTR is? I said, Andy, you know it's this thing, it's this, and you gotta do this. It's good if the kid maybe he uses as a something to know where he's at, but it's really bad. You know, I don't know about all that. <laughs> he said, I but all I know is I, I thought I had a UTR one time, but I put a little cream on it and it went away. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I could say that over the over the air, but I did, didn't I? Yeah, that's good. That's good. <laughs> you know, and I I just died laughing. But no, no. It's look, the UTR, the good thing about it is the rating thing is they're trying to connect tennis, they're trying to connect people. I'm against a one level tournaments where everybody's the same UTR. I'm for tournaments like we used to do. Early two rounds you would play somebody that was less than you. Middle rounds you play somebody like you. Semis and finals, you play somebody's better than you usually, and that's how you made jumps. You have every coach knows that you've got to do you, you do a third, a third, a third if you want to schedule properly. You schedule below you, you schedule even with you, and above you. I have to go see my A D every year. And he says, hey, How are you doing this scheduling? I said We've got four levels: can't win, could win, should win, going to win. And I, you know, parents out there, if you listen, you'd be very smart. There's no bad win in tennis. Make sure your kids get to play plenty of matches that they're supposed to win, so they learn how to win. You don't get better by playing up all the time. You learn. You only learn to lose. You got to learn how to win. Some sooner or later in the sport, you know. So. <laughs> it, but anyhow the u t r thing is it's got some brilliance to it, but and then the ideas are great, and I love that they're starting to pay pay people to win tournaments uh that's because of the silly college rule that we had to you know put in or they put in. Do you know about that, don't you since two thousand twelve or so?
0: I'll go ahead and share that with us
3: okay, so always you had to be an amateur to play tennis. I, I just know, I think they're probably sending the hitman after me or something. I just have, I've been around too long. But uh, so, about mid 90s, about 94 schools got in trouble for, you know, having players that pro, pro maybe had taken money, okay? 94, and NCAA said, can't play. So they sat them out and they had a big meeting, then they came back later and they, you know, slapped their hand and said, "Well, they can be reinstated, but they got to sit out three matches." Well, the coaches are recruiting players that had already taken money from overseas, primarily because nobody could check on the internet. They they said, "We got to sit out three matches." Really? Now the floodgates opened. Everybody started recruiting a lot of players. And I'm not saying people just cheat and all that stuff. I'm not just going to talk about that. You know that, but. We were the only country in the world, pretty much, just have all amateurs, and you know that because you've had your own sons and playing, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's so. The bottom line on the thing was that finally they realized that look, we've got so many kids playing college tennis that that have uh, you know probably taken some money somewhere that they now since two thousand I forget twelve whatever. The rule is you can take up to $10,000 before you enter school per year after expenses. Okay? $10,000 per year. Well, that's everybody except the top 300 in the world pretty much. And and so basically now players, you're allowed to take money as long as you can prove that you're – you know that you're. You know uh, they they want some expense receipts and all that stuff, but you can make up to ten thousand dollars. Well, they all over the world they're doing this. So why don't they pay? Well, USTA, if you're listening, why don't you instead of giving trophies to kids, give them a thousand bucks for winning a big tournament? You know, I'm. You see where I'm going here? I mean, we probably need to do this if we want kids to. You no, know, parents are going broke. Don't give them a trophy or, you know, give them, give them a paycheck, you know, because there is no amateurism up to $10,000 and you can see where the NIL thing, that, what is it, name, image and likeness thing is going.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: So I think it's only a matter of time, but it would be a very probably a good thing. You know, we have to do that.
0: Well, there's, I think, there's but again,
3: my... go, ahead. go ahead. No, I no, sir.
0: Go. I was just going to say there's... A lot of positives with the UTR, but to me, it's the wild, wild west. There's so many tournaments now, and, you know, tournaments obviously are moneymakers. As a coach, I think a coach should coach. I think that a lot of times coaches say, well, you know, I can make more money. I'll sit in the air conditioning pro shop, and I'll, I'll run a tournament, yeah. and I make more money running, running that event, and I right, know, right. would be out there teaching kids how to play. Right. Um, yeah, th- Go ahead.
3: No, I I think you you bring up a good point about money. But my first-year coach, and I heard this guy in Atlanta. I wish I could remember. He was a Southern guy, coach. Dang, but he gave his best talk. And he said there's six reasons people are motivated. He said either financial reward, material reward. But he said don't forget appreciation, association, self-improvement, and service to others. I go, huh. So, you know, most people, you know, we've got to make a living. But association, when you have something that's really important, like Belton, South Carolina, South Carolina tournament, they used to have workers, 20 workers there, just because they just wanted to be part of that. And tennis is that kind of sport. You get great workers who just want to be part of things. Association appreciation, when you show appreciation to people, it's a rare thing now. You know, people, you know, just taking the time to be kind. We've never had more communication and less, less relationships in the world, have we? Then self-improvement is a big, big reason we want our kids playing. We don't want our kids to just play for material reasons. We want them to understand what a, the greatest learning tool in the world. I'm telling my players all the time, most of my players are not going to try play pro tennis at the level we're at. We have two or three that are doing real well. But but the point being is that I want them to learn how to think on their feet immediately and be able to make good decisions, be honest, be fair, be hardworking. Today I was telling them, guys, I want you to know that we're training real hard now trying to get ready for the season. I said, guys, I want you to learn what it's like to suffer and fail, to suffer and fail, to work and to work. And then finally, finally, Gain something, and you will never ever trade that work ethic that you learn through this great sport. You know, and and we're we're cheap. We're we're just <laughs> it's ridiculous how cheap and we have made this when we're after points, we're after money, we're after, and you know, and so you know, the self improvement, but service to others is the ultimate goal. And you know, Steve and I want to accomplish Listen. For as long, look, I've got a player on my team right now that loves you. He, he just, he talks about you all the time. And you did, you changed his game and got him into the place where he's in the arena doing, but you had done this your whole life and stuff, but service to others after 60, anybody out there after 60, if you're not trying to help out kids, you're going to look like a burnout rock star looking for a new gig. <laughs> and it's a pretty, no, it's a pretty sad thing. Because after 60, we have to give back. And I, that's so cliche, but we need a good mentoring system in this, in, in our sport. You know, we need our, teach our kids to be mentors either, also. The great, the best thing we could do, the USTA too, you guys need a mentoring system where you have a three tiers. You have someone who's very wise helping the, the somebody below him, and then our top pros, need to be passing it down to younger pros and our younger pros need to be passing it into the college kids and the college kids need to be helping the high school kids and that would, we would have another tennis boom but people, you know, we have a sport where we promoted players more than the sport itself. Golf did right. They promoted the the sport. See, they could lose Tiger Woods and they still got a great sport but we promote the players so much it's not good for the players. It's not good for the sport, you know?
0: Mm -hmm. Jack, why don't you, You uh, I know you explained that so well with the mess, the message and the messenger. Could you elaborate upon that?
3: Well, you know, I have a good friend that's over in Cambodia and he's a brilliant person. He's coached on the pro tour around the world for 22 years named Robert Davis, but he, he sent me, he said, coach, coach, I'm over here in Cambodia and I, Um, you know there's so many people there's some missionaries over here that are doing great work and stuff he said i figured out why some people finish so very well in their life he said over here these guys all never put the messenger ahead of the message they always put the message first now in usa we try we put the billboard out there first don't we and 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 we need to be putting the message of tennis out there first, the history and the heritage. Number one, the history and the heritage of our great gate, Steve. The history and the heritage, we need to be protecting it like it's a precious heirloom. But we're promoting it by dang on like Fifth Avenue salesmen. We're just promoting money and stuff. And it's just, I tell my guys, I say, guys, no, <laughs> no matter. How much do you think that winning something's going to make you famous? You're never going to be as famous as, uh, you know, that guy down the street who's on fake, I call it fake book, on fake book that's promoting, you know, uh, I always say, and I watch Andy Griffith a lot, but they have a thing about Aunt B's pickles. So I, I said, you're never going to be as popular as Aunt B was with those pickles. <laughs> the guys, they don't have any idea what I'm talking about. But on book, you know, Fake book. but, um, you know, we, we really need to promote the sport, put the message ahead of the messenger. And then if you're lifted up, if you're lifted up like Harry Hopman, I will sing his praises to the day that I die because I saw him test and train hundreds of people. They got valuable life lessons. You know, and I'm not running down anybody else. I'm just saying Hotman was the, it was the best. I've, I, I'm grateful always because he gave me a seventy dollar a week job. I'd, I'd never I'd never been in tennis, but he but he, he made us do it the right way. By you know, and Rod By the way, I wanted to shout out to everybody. Rod Laver, the best book you'll ever, you could ever read on tennis. Honor the game. Honor the game. Rod Laver, it's, uh, let's see, Triumph Books, Rod Laver, and Autobiography. He has somebody, I guess... Bud Collins? Was, uh... Did
0: Bud Collins write that with him?
3: No, it's not the Bud Collins ones. It's oh, okay. it's a new one. It's called okay. Rod Laver, Autobiography, Triumph Books, Triumph Books. It's fantastic, folks. It's fantastic. It starts when he's a kid. It talks about Harry Hopman. It talks about how he, well, how he got started in the backyard his uh, his dad made a court out of, uh, you know, the kind of, uh, yeah, 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 yeah.
0: And the, but, barrel and the shovels and they went one ant pile to the next and right. basically as an Aussie grew up on a sand court we you don't think of the Aussies learning to play on dirt, learning to play on clay.
3: Right, right. But it's, it's the best thing I make my players when they come in as freshmen, I want them to love the sport, honor, honor the sport. When people tell me, what do I do to get good? I said, if you honor the sport, it will honor you. If you try to take away from the sport, the tennis gods will smack you down. You, it will, they'll cut you up and smack you down. You have no chance. The sport is too complex. It's too fantastic.
0: Yeah, I tell kids, I don't want to be sacrilegious, but if, if there is a tennis heaven, you're not going to go. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you, you, you just have to have that work ethic. But yeah, if, No. Talk a little about the work ethic. I know that with the Citadel, but I was told uh, that you used to love to take your players from Clemson up to West Point. Talk a little bit about the culture of sport and how that. I think that's going away. I think maybe the NFL and college football, football yeah. in general, yeah. is maybe one of the only sports that still teaches hard, hard life lessons.
3: You know, everybody, Bill Tim, the great Bill Tim, great, great coach, he said to me one time, I know exactly, we're nationally indoors in Dallas, and he was there watching. He was coaching at Vanderbilt at the time. He said, "Look, most p- people in our sport know the, uh, the price of everything, but the value of very little." And I, I hang I, I, you hang on to loaded language like that. That's very, very powerful. You know, I'm, I'm, my mother used to have this wonderful thing. She said she used to be the king of loaded, queen of loaded language. You say, soap is cheap, books are free, never be dirty or dumb. And she used to say, don't take any wood nickels. Best thing I've ever heard, though, was uh, the world promises you buckets of rhinestones, but God gives you the chance to make one diamond with your life. That's pretty powerful. you have to think about that one. But Bill Tim said, everybody knows the price of everything, the value of very little. Well, the the value of our sport, I could never have stayed in it. Uh, 51 years teaching tennis at some level. I could never have been in it this long. Never, ever, ever. If the value of what I see happens to people's lives, you know, the work ethic that they get, it does not reward you without suffering and great work ethic. And so we always went West Point. Jim Pulling, first of all, was a Clemson grad. He played on championship team in, I think, 69 there. But, um, I've known him for years and we'd go up to play them at West Point and just, it's what, what an experience to go there and eat their dining hall. And then you play these guys who are basically going to give nine years of their life, you know, and, and the way that compete, you know, they compete hard, clean, everything is about honor, you know, and, uh. It's always been a fantastic thing. Same thing, you know, uh, Chris Garner is now at Naval Academy. He's, he's fantastic. We've been out also at the Air Force. But um, anybody gets a chance to go to those academies and play, you should. Any parent living out there, I mean, you know, it's fantastic. Out at the Citadel, I absolutely love being there for what I see happen to these young men and young women's lives. It's Right before your eyes, in a period of a thousand days that they're there, they grow up and, and you know, there's, it's, you, you cannot cheat the system. You cannot squeak through. You, you just, you, you have to do the right thing. You have to go to classes. You have to be a good, you have to be an honorable person. But the way I explained it to this, and I'm sure Jim Poling or Chris Garner would say the same thing. And this is a, this is a profound thing. You're going to have to think about this. But the parents, I say, look, in our world right now, everybody's trying to be diversity, diversity on the outside. They'll do anything extreme on the outside, but then on the inside, there's almost a push to try to force you to be just like them or to think like them. So it's, I'll, i it, you know, diversity on the outside, but on the inside, you better think like me, you know, or they're threatened that these but what we learn with this like most of military academies is you learn a chain of command in the order of having to work on the outside. It's not a lack of diversity, it's that there is a chain of command for life. But on the inside, this is the big point. On the inside it promotes you being one hundred percent diverse, one hundred percent free thinker, one hundred percent you are your person. You're number one in the world at being who you are. And that's what we should we do with our players, too. You never teach a player to be a cookie-cutter player. You tell them to be number one in the world at being who they are, and then they have a chance to be great. So that's why I absolutely love, I love the military academies. You know, I'm, I'm just, um, I'm proud to be there every day that I'm there. I beat my chest, and just I'm proud, you know, so anyhow that's
1: great
0: brandon um what do you got We'd let brandon see if he can read his own writing here what do you got
1: (laughs) it's kind of like chicken scratch at this point but no after listening to you talk i think every every player every college player every junior player um every assistant coach that's had a chance to 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 work alongside you just the the passion in which you talk about tennis and and uh, improving lives i think that's what uh what a, what a privilege they've had, but just um, I think everyone could use a use a dose of this. So it's great that this is going out to uh, to our listeners in the podcast. But I just I had a quote here from Jay Lapidus from Duke, and he said he's never through the time of you guys playing each other and, in the ACC, he's never witnessed one of your players being disrespect, disrespectful or dishonest. And I can clearly see. <laughs> Through the through the way that you talk about character, uh, how that how that matriculated into him saying that about your players, but if there's any way you could describe to our listeners any processes that you would go through as a manager um, of the team, as a coach of the team, as a recruiter, what were the what were the boxes that you would try to tick uh, on a on a daily, weekly, you know? Yearly basis.
3: Well, first of all, Jay Lapidus is one of the most respected. He was as a competitor, as a player, and to hear that and to hear him say that, it, it means the world to me. But listen, Jay Lapidus, we had thirteen year run in the ACC. We only lost two ACC matches from nineteen seventy eight to ninety one. When Jay started coaching at Duke, you know he came in and he got players, worked them hard, and they, they took us down, and then Duke dominated through that era, but he always treated us with integrity, never, the same same thing, there was a sportsmanship in and in a fairness there that was, that you'd ne- you didn't regret, you know, that ever, ever, when they took you down, they never rubbed it in your face. You know, I, I, I just, you know, the bully tennis, the howler, I call it howler monkey tennis a lot of times, you know, the bully tennis when people get in other people's faces and stuff, you know, but, but here's, here's the, here's the, the, the end of it. Okay. We all have the battle within ourselves as a competitor and we all ask the question, do I have what it takes? Do we have what it takes? We're always trying to prove that. And it's why sports are so great. Sports are maybe the last arena where kids are challenged to the level of their soul, where they see things about themselves. It reveals on a mirror and makes you look at yourself. And then you have to, and I'm not proud of everything I've ever done. I, I have not liked it when when I, you know, the passion takes over or something, you know? But here's here's the point. The point is, I, I would I would always say that if you honor the sport, it honors you. And there are if you you, you have to, you're always in the process of winning or losing every day of your life and it has very little to do with a win or a loss. Now that being said, losses still bother me for two days and we lose <laughs> we lose a lot the citadel. And losses just crush you. Even as a tennis coach, uh, I forget who it was uh, said. Man, it feels like somebody shot my dog. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's the worst. It's hard, but uh, with your players, what you want when it, you want them to learn how to give everything in a losing cause, everything in a winning cause. And here's what here's here's the analogy I use. I say, guys. When you give everything in a winning in a losing cause, it's going to hurt. But it's like a broken bone. When it heals, it, you come back twice as strong. Mm-hmm. Then eventually, you learn that. Listen, here's here's where this is, and this is what this is, and this is what real winning is. And you don't you don't bail out and just say, "Hey, I'm a good sport and I like losing." No, you hate losing. I tell them, you're not allowed to get mad. When you lose, you're allowed to hurt. There's a big difference. Being mad is like a little child that doesn't get what he wants, and he starts pounding his fist. The Hurting is where I want you because that that teaches you. The pain teaches you. But with with the, 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 the losing, when you lose and it, you give your best, it's like a broken bone that when it heals, it becomes twice as strong. Now, if you don't give your best and you lose, it's still going to hurt. But it's like a virus or a disease that follows you around and you never quite get over it. I call it the Q virus, the quitter virus. You know, (laughs) and it, 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 you, when you get hurt, when you hurt, it hurts. But boy, you have caused a long term deal when you don't give your best. So, I live by this, and I told a guy today: we're having we're having three out of five set challenge matches at practice. I was telling him, "Look, you have good goods, good bads, bad goods, and bad bads in this sport. A good good is you do your very best and it works out. You had a good bad today. You gave everything you had and you lost, and you got to you got to just give them the credit. And move on. The worst thing you could have, listen." All you parents out there, the worst thing you could have is a bad good, a participation trophy. Giving the kids something they didn't earn. You cheat and win. That's a bad good. You know, a lot of times things things are, it's it's not what happens to you, it's what happens inside of you. But the bad good make you rot inside, makes you weak. Bad goods turn to bad bads. And so that's sort of the way that I do it. And, uh, But I couldn't say enough about back about Jay Lapidus. He didn't, you know, maybe get enough credit for turning that program into such a great program. Ramsey Smith's coaching there now, but uh, their sport, that you know, and sportsmanship isn't about just being the happiest loser. You know, a lot of people say a good sport, you're the happiest loser. No, you hurt badly, but you try to find a way to turn a bad into a good. By doing, you know, do the next right thing. Do the next right thing. You know, do the next right thing. Do it the right way and do it right now. Jimmy, and it's really, really hard to do.
0: Jay was a player, too. I remember watching him at the U.S. Open. Chuck, you're a couple years older than the 1952 age group, uh, which was amazing with Jim, Jimmy Connors and Dick Stockton and Brian Gottfried, Harold Solomon, Eddie Dibbs.
3: I'm about uh, the same. Pretty close. Pretty close. I'm a little bit older than them, but close, that was yeah. pretty what pretty think, great group,
0: huh? What would you say about those guys? I mean, I think arguably these, that's the best, <laughs> best age group ever in American tennis.
3: Be, be, best age group ever. But let me tell you what, while, where, we got a, where we got it wrong was, you know, that whole group of guys, I mean, what a class human being like Brian Gottfried has always been, you know. My mama used to say, uh, the wise man walks with the great in the small in equal dignity. That's pretty deep, too. And Brian Godfrey is is quite a man, you know. And and uh, those those that group that whole group honored the sport, and that's the emphasis I want to make. But somewhere along the line, we started promoting the hype to it and try to make our players like and not rock stars or you know something like that. We promoted we didn't promote the process of everything that they did. We promoted the product of what they had achieved. So the you know the process is always more important. You you know you 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 have the the, do the right process, the right product will will, you know come out.
0: For our listeners, Brian Godfrey got to be three in the world. Arthur Ashe said about Brian Godfrey, he goes, his work ethic. He practiced on the day he got married.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, look at Arthur Ashe. Look at Stan Smith. Look at those guys were. um, And again, it's they. Put the message ahead of the messenger. You know, you never saw them running to the front and try to get the get the stuff that you know. And I can't. I don't have the expression I use with my team. I'm, I probably shouldn't say it. <laughs> it blows away faster than something in a hurricane. That's all I'm going to say. I tell the guys the wrong stuff. <laughs> I
0: heard John John Lloyd, who's the same age, say one time that. The people from that era, when they started playing tennis, there was no money in tennis. And they just, right. they just played for the love of the game. It wasn't yeah. like they were looking for a paycheck.
3: Read, read, read Rod, La- Rod Laver, Triumph Books. I, I can, I've read it twice. I couldn't put it down. I get every one of my players to read it. You know, if you honor the game, it will honor you. That Those guys will be honored always for their, the way they put the message ahead of the messenger.
0: Um, you know, Check. Let me let me have Scott Flanagan ask another question. Uh, he's got very good verbals. I mean, was very impressed with uh, his command of the English language. He's not as good as his brother. His brother got a perfect score on the SATs.
1: But give it another shot. <laughs> Holy <here again>.
0: cow! <laughs> what do you got for a question?
1: Well, you mentioned uh, earlier the mentorship programs. Um, I'd, I'd love to hear a little <laughs> bit more about your Serve It Back program, as far as mentorship. Okay,
3: that's what it's called. It's called Serve It Back Program, and I got fired up about it in late 90s. I went to a, a promise keepers meeting in Atlanta, Georgia with my son. There were 60,000 men there with their son. It was unbelievable. But the thing that stood out in it was fantastic was the mentoring program and how we as men are shirking our responsibility with our families and different things. But it says we need to have mentors around us. And to this day, I have a couple uh, people that I've gone to. I've got an older gentleman that took me to the uh, took took me to pick up the car. That is sort of my mentor, someone that I go to to help me figure out what's going to come down the pike here in the next few years. So everybody should have someone above them. Everyone should have somebody below them, but everyone should have people equal with them. So the point is is that. It's a great concept if you can don't be too proud to go ask help from people who have already been on the journey that you want to go on. And we're too proud to ask help sometimes, but it saves time. Now, here's the deal, though. But you then have a responsibility to mentor to someone younger than you. And guess what? They have a responsibility to mentor someone younger than them. And so it's a three-tier mentoring program, chain. And what you do, and then so you have someone above, someone below, but your most important group is that peer group of yours that holds you account, you give them permission to hold you accountable to a high standard. Could you imagine on your team, just guys, I want to be a great tennis player, please hold me accountable to a high standard of work ethic and integrity and honor. And if you do that, people won't do that unless you give them permission. Because they think they're interfering. But if you give them permission, so I have three guys I call Barney, you know, one from down there in Miami, one of my first players, Pike Rally. The great Kenny Thorne at Georgia Tech was a rival, but I used to call him Barney. Some, he was because of Barnabas, you know, it's, it's biblical. You have a, a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy. So you had Paul, you know, had the teacher, and then Barnabas was the best buddy that had traveled around. You need friends that hold you accountable, but you've got to give them, you know, and then the Timothys are the students. So, but but it's brilliant. The Serve It Back program was just that. And I tried to get it going here in the state of South Carolina and stuff, and I, I, I talked to a few USTA guys. Now, Kent Kinnear is very recent. Very, he understands us. And before he got involved in kind of a, a lot, he was uh, his wife was working up in uh, North Carolina, and he had a really good servant back program, three-tier mentoring going at the YMCA in Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, at College Park, Maryland, when I worked there, we had eight teams. Now, the, the leaders of the 18-year-olds that were leading the team, Vesaponk, a brilliant man up there who I respect so very, very much. Well, he he helped put it together, too. We, we, but think about this. We had Mitchell Frank. We had Dennis Kudla. We had Junior Orr. We had, you know, eight, eight seniors in high school. And then they had a 16-year-old. And on Mitchell Frank, I just saw Mitchell Frank last week. He's teaching kids now. But Mitchell had uh, the third person down or the fourth person down was Francis Tiafo. So Francis was responsible. You know, Mitchell held him accountable and would work with him some. And then Francis had to help kids under him. So we had the three-tier mentoring program. We had the thing rolling pretty darn good, but it was really, it's a great concept. We need that in tennis in the U.S. We need a mentoring system. And, uh, you know, could you imagine... We got a few few of our top players to go spend time. Went over Christmas time with a few of the top up and coming college players. Mm. But the college players would spend time with maybe some of the high school kids, you know. And you could do it. You just have to teach the concept. I haven't right now in my life, you know. I have I have a couple Pauls. I have some Barney's, and then I've got, of course, the people I'm trying to teach. But it works. It, the two-tier mentoring programs grind everybody down. The person who is teaching gets grinded down, you know, and he's worn out. And then the person, he feels unappreciated. Then the person who's uh, doing it just becomes weak and like a, you know, like a, an, enabled. You know, you enable people and you don't want to do that because that just makes them weak.
0: Mm. You know, so. I think, Chuck, I mean, it's so well put. Uh, we had Ed Kras on and he... Uh, mentioned how you know, he's, he's promoting one-on-one doubles, where he learned uh, first learned that drill from you. But he, we just gave him We'd like to do this. for You here in a few minutes is ask you just um, some questions, just so you could say a few things about different players. But he, he mentioned one of your players, Kent Kinnear. We said who's the hardest worker that you've ever met. He mentioned Kent Kinnear. But I want to cry on you. he's one of them. I want to cry on your shoulder for just a minute. My my son Mikhail, goes to a Jesuit school. It was many many years ago. Now he's you know thirty soon to be, what, 32 years old. So there's a father-son retreat. They have approximately 90 students in the senior class, but on this retreat, it's 30 fathers, 30 sons. 79-year-old priest running the event. It's overnight, so we show up for lunch. We're going to have lunch, dinner, breakfast, lunch, and then we check out. They start the retreat by having us watch uh, we, after we have our, our lunch, and again, we stay overnight. We watch the movie Chariots of Fire. And the 79 year old priest goes, we're going to watch this film and then discuss it. I just looked at my son because we do that type of thing all the time. But anyway, the last, the last uh, meal, lunch, I mean, I've been in the kid business since I was a kid. So I could just hear all the chirping and the kids were going, dad, you know, the food sucks here. Dad, dad, let's go to, you know, let's go to Ben or let's go to DGIS Fridays, wherever they wanted to go. And. So there's 30 boys, 30 fathers, and, of course, my son says, hey, can we go eat someplace else? And I said, and the sandwiches are already made. I mean, it's just tuna fish, bologna, nothing fancy. And, of course, I said, over my dead body, are we going to leave? Only three kids stayed for lunch, three out of 30. The food was already prepared. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. And I'm thinking my father, he would have been in the parking lot you know, calling the other fathers back, and yeah. and that's just, and obviously it's a you know a, a school of the Jesuits. I mean, to respect the education, but um, it's like whoa! I mean, like, how how can that happen? So I, I think Bobby Knight. I mean, you probably could talk about Bobby Knight forever with the Indiana basketball, but he he said the level of parenting, um, it just has gone down. What do you what are your comments on that? You've been around parents oh, for boy. a long, long time. <laughs>
3: Uh, I'm gonna give, I'm gonna give all parents this thing here. You're gonna, you're gonna love this real quick. I'll ch- try to make it simple. Uh, several times in my career, I've had a strong-willed player come up to me, get in my face, and uh, you always say you mold the will, you don't break the spirit. It's easier to tame roaring tigers than to inspire timid pussycats. I love strong-willed kids. However, when they come up. <clears throat> get in my face about the last 15 years I've realized something I said well listen first of all thank you they go Why no 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 you only hurt the ones you love you talk back to me because you know I'll forgive you you know I care about you enough that I'll forgive you you would never say to a stranger what you just said to me you would never trade you know and and I tell the kids you would never talk to somebody like you talked to your parents just then but here's the thing: it's because they'll they love you and they'll forgive you. However, however, you know we're in this arena. You're not allowed to do this, and you know then I take them to the office and talk to them. I said, the office we can have our disagreements, but in this arena, I have to be. I have to be the boss. It's not me. It's not Chuck Creasy. It's the fact that this is the position that I'm in. You know, and. So the point, the point being with the parents is, so going on with this, my son who's just sixteen, he turned fifteen. Remember, he's coming downstairs one one day, and I said, "Son, you got to do this and this and this." And he burned up, and he came down. He said, "You know, he sort of got my face eye to eye." You know, and I I didn't know whether to hug him or hit him, <laughs> because it's like it's part of his. Part of his manhood is that he's got this thing where he wants to be in charge now. But to all you parents out there, this is a normal process, however. However, kids want to be disciplined. Kids want fences. Kids want to be told no. And here's the reason why. Their peer groups are so strong sometimes, they get in situations they don't need to be in. The best thing they could ever say is my dad would kill me if I ever did that. My mom would kill me if I ever did that. Oh, my gosh. My mom's dad, they're out of their mind, but they would kill me here. Now, the point is is they have to put up a fight. Kids have to put up a fight. And the hardest thing to do is to discipline our children, to see them hurt and things like that. But that is our – it's not the, – the feelings has nothing to do with it. It's our responsibility as a parent as an authority in their lives to not let them drive over a cliff that we know is there. And it's very dangerous. If you, if you're, I heard an analogy, if your son or daughter was in a burning house and you were outside and they were going to die, wouldn't you run into the house to save them? You know, you'd do anything. You'd risk your life to save them. But when our children are getting ready to go do the wrong thing, We neglect running into that burning house to save our children because it's uncomfortable. And again, it's so, so uncomfortable. My wife is great with my son. I believe in that Oedipus thing, by the way. If you're a strong-willed father and you're trying to raise a strong-willed son, usually time, you know, I think, turn that over. My wife does most of the heavy lifting with my son. And then I get my fatherly stuff in, but I do most of the stuff with my daughter. I believe in that Oedipus thing. You know, a lot of times it works that way. You know, with father son, or father daughter, you know, and stuff.
0: Yeah, if you make it, you know, it's different. Study the history of Excuse tennis. Me. With the study of the history of tennis, uh, yeah, there's usually the father son conflicts, so the mother daughter conflict, and
3: yeah, yeah, uh, just... we get our conf- we get our confidence in life from our father. Then women and girls get their confidence from their mother. They need to, we need the approval. We feel like, you know, our manhood sort of comes, I don't know, I'm talking, kind of, you know, people have all these theories out there on this stuff, but I know for a fact that, you know, we get our confidence from the father side. But, you know, the mother does, you know, mothers can just chew you up one side and down the other as a boy. And oh, you know, mom's mad, but she gets the job done. It's, it's pretty pretty good that way you know but any out to, to parents out there no we the kids want fences they want the fences because it it takes the pressure off of them that they are not yet equipped to do it's no difference than when you teach your child to drive you don't put them on the interstate highway right away you know they need they need parameters they need fences and and, we're, and it's really tough steve it's really hard i
0: do think that show- tennis
3: coach is the same thing same thing I th- I think you know it's you- harder. I think children are more
0: passive today with uh, you know, how much screen time they have. It's like, it's like they don't play outside anymore.
3: Uh, Steve, you know, the thing I worry about is the one-dimensional thinking. With these cell phones, linear thinking is not happening. Where the kids process? The hunger of an inquisitive mind is the most important quality of a championship athlete, according to Clarence Mabry, 1980, Roosevelt Hotel, one of the first times I went to that TA National Teachers Conference, somebody asked, what's the most important quality of a championship athlete? Great Clarence Mabry coached 20 years. They're always in top five. He coached Godfried and Stockton's and Bobby McKinley's wow. and Chuck. All those guys at Trinity. He said, most definitely, most important quality of a championship tennis player is the hunger of an inquisitive mind all right, that ask questions, that ask questions. Why, you know, and and things. But this one dimensional thinking, we're getting, we get mosaic thinking now, like piecemeal thinking. The kids don't process. If I do this, then this, then this, then this. You know, they 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 they're after a result, and consequently, their minds are not processing things, and it's it's uh, it's scaring scaring the daylights out of me for my children, and. We think we have a handle on it, but we're sort of getting addicted to this stuff too now, aren't we? Yeah, you know, you, you know,
2: it's,
0: it's Clarence Mabry, the, the the old Roosevelt Hotel. I can remember sitting next to him when uh, he was basically emceeing the whole whole event. What a, what a personality! Oh. But actually, our listeners, we you know, when we preach red zone, yellow zone, green zone, that comes from the the John Newcomb Family Tennis Book that Clarence Mabry wrote. Yeah, uh, I'd yeah. Lo- I love listening to you mention these names because uh, there's so many different connections.
1: Brandon, give us another question. What do you got? Well, yeah, I was actually going to start with this, but I think just uh, something I've heard you say uh, on a couple different occasions is how you really kind of almost always knew that you wanted to be a coach of some sort. Right. Yeah. yeah. And and kind of after that, you talk about just the responsibility and the honor of, of being a coach. But I think it would be really, really great, you know, and where I've kind of come across that um, is just to have you talk about, talk about your history um, as far as enjoying coaching and the responsibility of coaches, because I think, you know, as you know, we're down here in South Florida and it is uh it is a, a rather flashy area to be, and there's a lot of money motivated tennis coaches down here. But for the more of them that I hear you talk about the, the power of, of coaching and, and character development, I think it would be really helpful.
3: Well, I'm really led, this keeps popping in my head, and I'm not ashamed of my, <clears throat> my Christian beliefs at all. And I um, um, have my good friend in, in Cambodia, he called me recently and he said, and this is, hits it right on the head. He said, There are people, that search out the crown. And there's some people that search out the anointing. And, you know, in the Bible, they have David, King David and Saul. Saul had the crown, but he never had the anointing. You know, he had never had the calling. And so he he envied David. He always envied David. Now, David from the young boy had an anointing to do something, and then he was given the crown as well. And so, you know, I can, I can say this without a thing. I'm not saying, Hey, you know, I had such an anointing or something like that, but we've been called, if you don't do the work you've been called to do, it may never get done. And that's from a little play called Christie. I saw in the mountains of Tennessee one time. I remember that quote, Mm -hmm. you don't do the work you've been called to do. It may never get done. And, uh, the point I really, really believe is that, uh, We're very, very fortunate if we are able to find something in our lives that makes something much more meaningful than monetary, much more meaningful than the hype and the stuff that blows away, you know, so quickly that that goes away, that blows away, that doesn't mean anything at the end of the day. But coaches um, have an incredible impact on young people. Outside of their parents, I think that their te- parents and teachers, the coaches, have a great, great responsibility to do it honorably and to do it in the right way, and to try to uh, impact lives uh, when, when they're young. Because I know for myself, I just know that I had good, honest men. I, I remember in my in my book uh, uh, that the, the last one I did. I put down the name of every coach that I had in the uh, from uh, baseball to basketball to football to cross country to tennis and and I still have a picture of my high school coach brother Roland Driscoll. I went to a, a all boys Catholic high school in Indianapolis. He died at ninety seven years old, and I've got his obituary picture in um, the little in in my car right above, uh, you know, where you put your sunglasses and stuff. So I see Brother Roland. I still remember his voice. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I, he just, um, you know, I remember their voices because their voices were more than a simple direction or something. Their voices were passionate and they really, for the good or for the bad, you know, and it's just like you still hear your mom or dad's voice forever. But no, I, I never wanted to be anything else but a coach because I, and I wanted to be a basketball coach, but I was led in this direction, and I've never regretted one day. You know, in my whole life, being a coach, it's frustrating, it's hard, it hurts when things don't go the right way. But but we need to understand how important coaches are because with our, with our kids, tennis is, sports, is about the only place where they're going to learn passion. And how it translates into uh, something very, very good. It's not just emotions. It's 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 a, it's a event of the heart, an engagement of the heart. And and I want to say this, make this point. Really, the first thing I do when the players come in, I tell them, you go from a, a place of compliance to commitment to inspired enthusiasm until you, to to a place where you get your RAS, your reticular activating system locked in, where that's the law of attraction. Compliance, you can make a dog compliant by beating them into compliance or, you know, I mean, come on, it's not about just compliance. And then it's not about just commitment where you've got your head and the body. It's about inspiring them becoming inspiring, inspired. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when the kids get to the place where they're hunting out the answers, that's what, that's where you got to be, you know, but, uh, so anyhow, um, we're all the same place and Steve, I mean, you, you should be honored greatly and you I mean, your work is, has been fantastic and just, um, wow. you know, I, I'm just grateful. I'm just, am just, you know, we just got to keep it rolling, man. Maybe our best work's coming down the pike, huh? Yeah, we got to keep so. it rolling.
0: I want to say this about, uh, in the United States right now, a lot of highly educated Indian families, the the parents, uh, like IT specialists, they have their kids playing tennis, and I've had quite a few Indian parents listen to me talk to kids, and they say, I haven't heard someone talk to kids like that since I left India. But going back to my my son's uh, Jesuit school to give them a positive, um, so the very uh, first time I'm in the chapel with all the parents and the headmaster, Father Doyle, he said, if everyone would leave, and those of you that are chewing gum— dispose of your gum and then everyone can enter the chapel. And I kind of looked around and go, this is great. This reminds me of how I grew up. Uh,
3: <laughs> the, the, uh, That's, you haven't heard that one in a while. <laughs> the, uh,
0: so. yeah, I think the discipline has gone away, um, with, um, but yeah, let's go another question from Brandon Flanagan. What do you got?
1: Well, I'd love to kind of circle back to the, the scoring system and the, and the one last time in the simplicity, um, of maybe what 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 we've seen with, with with they didn't live during this time, but the '70s with pickup tennis and the tennis boom. But now you're seeing that with pickleball. Um, any any final thoughts on on how we're going to combat pickleball and and uh, get our get our players playing more tennis? Right.
3: Well, I, I had a little thing I did um, on the sleeping giants of tennis in the United States, and very quickly. I'll get to the pickleball very quickly here. But some of the sleeping giants, the obvious ones are high school tennis, where we have such great facilities and so many, you know, it could be so much better. College tennis is now a a giant that used to be. We're we're losing players like crazy uh, after 22, about 22 to 35 is a whole age group that we need something for. You know, that's a, that's a huge sleeping giant. Uh, small-town tennis USA, small-town tennis, you know, over 74% of our professional athletes come from towns less than 50,000 people. So that's a place, that's a sleeping giant. But but the big one I wanted to hit on that you, you've asked about was the pickleball thing. We're losing all of our senior tennis players. And I think the whole thing is this. It is all about the symmetry has been lost. Mick Braden would come to College Park a lot before he died. And, of course, I'd hang on everything he would say. I'd always, you know, uh, he was like the the great experiment of Thomas Edison. He could be the Thomas Edison of tennis, right? Because he was always trying to figure things out. He said this statistic, I won't forget. He said, with the Wood Rackets, the average rally from – one player to the next in and, and back was 3.9 seconds nearly 4 seconds all right he said it is today they said the average to you to you and back is 2.1 seconds or 1 second 60 miles an hour basically because 88 feet a second is 60 60 miles an hour well the tennis court is 78 feet, but five foot behind, five foot behind. Most rallies, 60 miles an hour, the ball's going down the line, which is impossible to cover a down-the-line shot, and that's a different thing. That's why shot selection has become so important. The game is so fast for the pros, even. Footwork is more important than stroking now. It really is, because if you can't do that, the symmetry is just so fast. So what happens when the ball's going so fast is that the ball striking has overcome the movement. The symmetry has been lost. So you have, it's literally like trying to dance a slow dance to fast music, and you can't do it. So old people, when they go play, I'll hit with my daughter, but I'll stand in the corner and rally with her. I can't run to catch up, and I could play with, if I used old wood rackets, I could play with somebody my age in the symmetry, and I could at least play doubles or something. Doubles, if you're really good enough, you could play doubles. That's why Ed Crass's one-on-one doubles is so good because you you can still you still have the symmetry. But, but again, that's what has been lost. Pickleball, we'll see. But it's a social game. Again, it's easy to pick up to be easy to put down right now. It's a social game and my kids could play it the first time they ever tried. My wife could play it the first time she ever tried. Anybody could go out and play right away, but we're making a big mistake thinking that it is on the same par with tennis. Mm. You know, tennis is like great, great classical music, the greatest artist of all time. And pickleball sort of like, uh, you know, some kind of new, I don't, I don't want to, you know, but some kind of music that they'll go, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute, that's a fad. And it, it's not the same. But we've just cheapened tennis. And, and we don't need to cheapen tennis. We need to keep it, you know, we need to figure a way to get our seniors back playing. That's what, that's the biggest deal. You,
0: know? you make a really good point. When kids uh, they leave college and they're really good tennis players, but they're not going to pursue a pro career, we don't have anything for them. We used to have, no. Uh, uh, what, over under twenty one, over twenty-five. I yeah, our work ethic's going away, just like you talked about, you know, well, let's just uh you know, play the third set as a match tiebreaker to ten.
3: Uh, tiebreaker. So here's the you know what the hidden consequences of that? Not just long player wins. A lot of time, you know, I have the tanking's unbelievable. I see kids win the first set, tank the second set, then just try to win the tiebreaker and things. But here's the worst, here's the worst that nobody thinks about. Every rite of passage in tennis, when a player makes a jump, it's usually a very, very decisive. It's a very tough, tough match that gets them over the hump. Like if you remember John Isner, everybody can remember him breaking through as a de-squashing Washington D.C. He won a seven-six in the third, six and six, seven-five in the third, and he broke through. Those were long, long battles that you finally get over the hump. All right, it's a rite of passage. The, I, I I won a 20 to 18 third set match at a high school match when I was in high school 1968 <laughs> high school I still remember the match but those are rites of passage okay now when you win a tiebreaker for the third set it's sort of like kissing Aunt Sally it's not really a kiss the kids will win it's not that big a deal but that's not a rite of passage but here is the bigger thing when you lose 7-5 in the third and it crushes you, every time you've got to go back and you've got to sort of decide, do I love this sport enough to continue? You know, Agassiz in his book is saying, you know, he was selling his rackets that one time. But every player gets to the place where they said, I've had enough of this. I can't do it. Then they pick it up and they go, no, 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 I'm going to try again. And usually that breakdown leads to a breakthrough. And the point is, it's got to hurt enough, again, getting back. It's got to be painful to lose. You don't get mad. It hurts. We are not allowing our kids to hurt. When they lose a the tiebreaker for the third set, typically, oh, I had to play a tiebreaker for the third set. a bunch of crap, man. This is crap. crap. I lost a tiebreaker. You know, I lost those three points in a row. And it has no – so what I, what I do when I'm out of time at, at practice and I need to get matches done, I do an icebreaker. Okay. If you're going to allow the tiebreaker to be a whole set, I play it the first set. You play a tiebreaker for the first set. And Steve, you're the better player than me. I win the tiebreaker. You never would lose two sets to me. The deciding part of the match is a set, and a set, is a full set.
0: Wow. That's now, really
3: Steve, good. if you if you win the tiebreaker, you'll have a shorter match. Tournament directors be happier. Well, I'd make it a. Not quite a whole icebreaker. You start at 3-3 three, three in the first set, and then you play full set, full set. Wow, that's but we,
0: we I've we, never heard we, that.
3: What an idea. Wow. It's called an icebreaker. And now, Cookville, Tennessee, a high school coach, <clears throat> uh, Coach Brian up in Cookville, Tennessee, shout out to you, man. But he came up with the idea, and he said he used it. And it works great, you hmm. coaches out there. Don't play it for the third set. I would never you know what I did today? We're playing three out of five set matches and we gotta get ready to play this no ad scoring. So the guy said, Coach, coach, we play no ad. I said, guys, I gotta find out who the best player is. Um, all right, look, three out of five sets, but the deciding set has to be a regular tennis because well I wanna find out who the better player is. Because in no ad you, you just have so many just Swings of momentum. I had a Richard Matacheski lost to the kid from UCLA, O and O, in his senior year. He lost seven, three all games. Okay, he beat the same kid a month later, two and three. Well, well, wait, that that doesn't happen in real tennis. You know, it's 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 just so. Anyhow, I could, I just, I just absolutely hate. What we're doing with the scoring system, and they're trying to pull the wool over our eyes. And uh, there is no good reason. If it had a lot of merit, you'd have by everybody fighting for it. And listen, I'll stay that out front. The I.P.A. basically cheated. Like they 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 did the wrong stuff to push that through. We had five votes that voted it down. We had the the coaches voted down. We had Mitchell Frank who's of Virginia, got thirteen hundred and sixty seven signatures from players that did not want to play no ad. The women had one hundred and ninety seven ninety six coaches Lynn Loring at Indiana ran a poll. You had one hundred and ninety six coaches sign a petition that want to play no ad. they pushed it through anyway and and so there has to be something behind it. You know, and here's, here's my theory. I'm telling everybody out there. They want your kids to play no ad scoring. They push it into the juniors. They got college, and they push it down into the juniors. Now, in five or six years, nobody's going to argue about it if they go up into the pros when they graduate up. Right now, are you kidding me? They'd never get the pros to play it. But if they put enough money in it, pretty, pretty soon people say, well, we had to play that in college. And then you can see how it'll be bled in. Well, who does it pay? Yeah. Who does it pay to have randomness, you
0: know? One thing with pickleball, as a purist, I, for the longest time, like I'm anti-pickleball. I went to a clinic one time just to, you know, okay, what's going on with pickleball? It was a coaching clinic. With, to me, though, because we're not doing a very good job in tennis, teaching people to play from the service line in, is I think our our tennis kids should go over to the pickleball courts and I think it's such a user-friendly right now. It's inexpensive. Yeah, I think it's unfortunate yeah. that the PTR and the USPTA overnight became, okay, let's certify pickleball coaches.
3: No, I, I really think they cheapen their stance. Yeah. They um, cheapen their stance, you know, and, and they got to understand that you just don't pull people in. I can't think of a good analogy, but you, you basically pulled in something that looks like a rival right now, but in the end, it's, you know, it's like, it's like joining classical music with with some cheap you know cheap rock or something like that that's not even on the same you know it's not even the same class it's not the same class.
0: Brandon introduced me to one of his colleagues, uh top squash player top ten in the world. he has five squash courts, plus he has an indoor tennis court. What he said, and I said this earlier on a podcast, what he doesn't like about pickleball is invading tennis. They're not, yeah. they're not making it on their own, but I think if you, sometimes, you know, you can't beat them, join them. It's like, okay, let's get our kids. The young generation's coming up. Let's teach them how to volley again and take yeah. them to pickleball courts and say,
3: okay, we got to do this. <laughs>
0: we have to do this now. Get in there and volley.
3: And, and whoever's
0: running pickleball,
3: I'm going to tell you this. The only free cheese comes in a And And, and some lady told me that one time, a, a mother of a of a very good player told me that the only free cheese comes in a mousetrap. And the point is, for pickleball, it's bad for tennis, but it's bad for pickleball. You're good enough, stand alone. But you know, pretty soon, what will happen is uh, they look at financial things. I think they've all panicked because of this daggone virus stuff, and you know they're sort of looking at looking at that so much, Steve. You know they're not looking at the long term. Here's the thing, USDA. Let me tell you, history and the heritage of the game. Everything should be based around people having to learn the history, the heritage. Our kids should absolutely be be have be able to honor this great sport they're getting into with the learning about the past players and the history. And you know we need to honor our traditions. We need to honor our traditions. And we don't we don't need to stay up with uh, you know just fads. And so if we did that, then we have something that you know the people would would look at it as much more than just some after school activity. That's that's just a real nice thing here. You know,
0: well, so. with the governing body tennis, uh, your alumni um, tell us. Uh, I mean, actually, we have a, an Irish student who's helping us with uh, producing this podcast and uh, think about Owen Casey over in, in Ireland. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Owen. But you have, uh, yeah. in this country, you've got, uh, you know, going from Jay Berger to Kent Kinnear. There's there's, there's certainly but, others. I mean,
3: um, Des Dunes, John Des Dunes yeah. was, one of the, yeah. With, we've, we've, we've had a lot of, yeah, a lot of guys who've gone to work. I worked for USTA, uh, you know, I did a lot Early '80s, you know, as Junior Davis Cup coach, and that was a great system. Actually, as the '87s when they started that uh, player development thing,
2: but right. so we
3: always had the Junior Davis Cup teams. But I did a lot of a lot of stuff back in then, and um, you know, the the thing is, it's 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 much needed, and we need we need an organization that leads us, and um, you know, just it it, it adds to what what we're all about, but what happens almost always... You see Ford versus Ferrari, yep. people out there. You guys saw it. I love that movie. I saw it five times. Wow. But I've got so many tennis analogies about how... I love the the way that uh, Matt Damon talked to Henry Ford. He said, Mr. Ford, you cannot win Le Mans by committee. In and, and USTA, we cannot win Wimbledon and all these by committee, it's not done that way. You you, you need the backing of these great organizations. You're not going to run them down, but you need the independent enterprise and the freedom that greatness is made with. Greatness is not made in a package. It's made by some internal drive that people have. You know, it can't not be done. <laughs> that was so good that movie. You know what was the best part about it? If you go back and watch it, right at the end, when he was cheated, when Ken Miles was cheated out of Le Mans, there. Yeah. And he turned around and he looked up, and old man Ferrari was up there, and old man Ferrari tipped his hat. Remember?
2: Yeah.
3: That's all. That's all he needed. You know, <laughs> that's all he needed. He was okay then. You know, he understood. He understood. It wasn't about the gore, but he he won Le Mans.
0: You know, talking about and, uh, movies, I ran this program, as you know, for tennis teachers. We get a degree. Many times on the weekend we say, okay, this was back when they had Blockbuster. Go go rent this VHS tape, watch the movie, and we'll discuss it. Now with cell phones, you take a kid to a movie like Ford versus Ferrari, and you ask him, do you like the movie? or What do you think of the movie? They just go, good, and then they put their head down and look at their cell phone.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so it's like,
0: put those, I just,
3: put those cell phones oh, away
0: God. and let's have a discussion.
3: Oh, gosh, I took my whole team... <laughs> And see. I, I used to take my team to see these movies. You know, whether it's Rocky. I took them to see Creed, too. I took them. Oh, I took them to see The Darkest Hour about Winston Churchill. I love Winston Churchill. Yeah. You know, and and nobody, understood. people, young people don't understand. We were a day away from basically losing the war. I mean, the Battle of Britain that one year, 1941, saved the world. But it was Winston Churchill. So I told my guys, like they came out, I said, what'd you think? What'd you think? Oh, now, literally, we had 11 guys, okay? Five of them said, coach, it was great. It's one of the best things. The other six got a coach. We slept through that thing. It was <laughs> boring thing in a world. <laughs> and I go, what? <laughs> I'd,
2: have
0: to, I'd have to ask Brandon, you know, so I met Brandon. And I used to do things where, you know, I tell a group of kids, uh, I need want you to go look up... Uh, Winston Churchill quote, and you know most of us our age, Chuck, we're fortunate that our parents had a set of encyclopedias, but you yeah. you had to go yeah. look it up. But now you tell a kid, I want a Winston Churchill quote, they look it up on their phone, boom, they got it, and then it's you know they don't have to go yeah. Dig yeah. For, they don't have to go dig for it. So right. It's not appreciated right. as
3: much. Oh, it, it, was, uh, it was it was tremendous. He's such a. I saw a movie Young Winston and I, when I was at Hopman's uh, Port Washington I used to go to the movie by myself some at a local movie. But I saw Young Winston, the movie back in nineteen seventy two, and it influenced me so much. He was he had such a sense of destiny. He said at one point, he says, I'm twenty two and I'm not yet a hero <laughs> I mean, it was but it was it was amazing, um, You know the right person at the right time, and the the whole history. But anyway, we talk about our parents. But my dad, of course, World War Two years was probably too. He was in Italy, and my dad and his buddies—they were World War Two veterans. I can remember playing golf or something with them, and they'd talk about World War Two. My dad, my dad said, "Son, you got to understand, from 1945 to '50," he said. A lot of people stayed drunk. He says. He said we were so happy. He said. That, he said we were so happy that the, the war was over. We grew up in the depression, had to go to war. He said there was a lot of parties. He said, every weekend somebody was coming home, so a lot of people drank too much, son. <laughs> you know, and and he said we all we wanted to do is get a family, start a family. All we wanted to do is just have a normal life and start a family, you know, but that, that was the greatest generation. You know, that was the greatest generation for sure.
0: No, I mean so I tell people that I don't remember any of my childhood friends whose fathers were not part of world war II. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, I don't it's, either. It's a terrible thing that there's always been a war on planet earth, but um, yeah, I think this has been said too, that we Americans were, we're at our best when things are at the, at the worst and that we want we to be our best all the time. Let, let me start. We, with, go ahead.
3: Go ahead. No, just the freedom—the freedom, the freedom, <clears throat> the freedom that we, we take for for granted. People don't people don't understand that so many people died for that freedom, and it's it's just our ability to to have this phone conversation. You know, I can say what I what I need to say if I say it properly. You know, uh, address issues, not people. Try to stay professional. You can say whatever you want to say, but uh, with the freedom, and Steve is is something. I've been free to coach tennis and to teach and you have too. It's, it's a fantastic thing.
0: Chuck, let's start with the lightning round. Brandon, if you want to uh, interrupt with any questions you have, but, uh, just start with some of your players. I think actually Josiah Scheinblatt, he's a great uh-huh. player. And I think that's, yeah, that'd probably be more appropriate. We, I spent a lot of time with yeah. the late Jim Verdick and we just introduced his son, Doug and, you know, like what you've done with Josiah where he came in and he wasn't in the lineup and now he's climbing his way up. He's the captain. That's, yeah. that's probably a better story to ask. But let's start with uh, Lawson Duncan. I met him in 85. I was in Germany with the Davis Cup team. And I thought he was very aloof. And I said to Robbie Seguzzo, uh he's kind of standoffish. And he said, no, he's the most easygoing guy. And someone who played for you, Ryan Fleming, I went to Asheville to do a workshop. Yeah, And Lawson was so quiet. He was in the room and I say hey, Lawson what was it like to practice with Ivan Lendl? and then he opened up and it was a rainy day and he talked for for like an hour he's the guy who's just pet as a wolf, pet as a wolf and his jeep went off the road and puts his shoulder underneath the jeep and lifts it up but uh, yep. you coached him uh, tell us about just what I had, I had him
3: like, one what? one year yeah one no one year he's from up in Coloway North Carolina and his father pretty much taught him up there in Coloway and he he still hit, hit, used that backboard more than anybody I've ever seen. His freshman year, you would be at the office and they'd go to dinner and come back, ka-thump, thump 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 He He loved hitting the ball. He loved competing. Uh, definitely one of the best competitors I've ever seen in my life. And probably my biggest regret. I mean, he ended up being rookie of the year and finished finals in NCAA, but I blew it so big I stunk it up finals of the ncaa and that's where pern Force he had beaten pern Force six two six three about three weeks earlier and he had not lost the set to the finals but then we had three thousand people there dan mcgill is just he was as smart as a whip man he um he had you know we, we came out there and and we played played no ad lost and played no ad scoring Beat Force two and three and lost in the finals to Force in front of that Georgia crowd. I didn't. I didn't. I always just take Lawson down the bottom courts and make him sweat like crazy. I'd have him run and do sprints and he'd do. He'd do about forty five minutes of physical labor. But this particular time, old McGill had us waiting in sort of this little room and he, Lawson I was back there with him is like a cage bull. And then he comes out on the court and he just played played so tight. So, you know, I blame myself. I was a younger coach and I I blew it on that one real big. And but uh he ended up playing and he was the best player in the country that year hands down. But he did it without much of a serve but the best ground strokes that I've ever seen in college tennis. And and fast is uh 400 time, he, we would always have to run the mile, but I remember he ran a 52-flat 400.
2: Wow!
3: Um, you know, I mean, and then his mile time, of course, he blew it away, but he, the, the guy loved tennis. And then he went out on tour. He went out on tour a year too soon. Uh, he was doing well, and the agents were all over him and everything, and he turned pro at the end of the summer after his freshman year. He needed one year to be able to face the pressure of being – good win for other people he needed to be the person who was just getting shot at so he got up to forty eight in the world or something but uh that was a that was a shame he needed one more one more year of college he, and he but he's still great career and just a great human being
0: Chuck how about a few thoughts on uh Mark Dixon my son Connor I took Connor to take serve lessons from mark and his his father used to come and just he'd hit Larry mark. Dixon. Yep. he'd come yep. and watch our uh watch our kids practice and just, he just loved tennis and uh, you'd sit on the, the picnic table and hang out with us almost every day at lunchtime. That's
3: right. Steven, if anybody wanted a lesson on how to parent to be Larry, you know, Larry Dixon, he'd always say, how's my champ doing? Everything was positive. How's my champ? Now, Mark loved tennis. You know, Mark, Mark loved tennis. To this day, we had a drill we did today. I call him Mark Dixon. And it's a, it's a volley footwork thing that he used to do all the time, and he would love that, but we, we called Mark Dixon's, and I I, I I try to honor him. I do a thing. I have Emmer, Emerson drills, too. Emerson, after Roy Emerson, the drill he used to do, he always tried to credit different people. But uh, Mark, uh, you know, he had a great, great career. He got 12 in the world, I think. But he basically loved to compete in tennis. He loved playing tennis. Now that being said, I couldn't ever figure out he did so many things. I always said Mark does fifteen things with his ratchet set. I wish he just had a, you know, a crowbar and a hammer sometimes, so I could figure out how to help him more. But he had a knack for the game. He told me that he learned most. He became he said the credited most of all living in Tampa, Florida, and having so much wind all the time. And he had to play against a guy like George Tenassi, you know, and you know those guys. Yeah. And they were tough little players. And he said, we had so many players, and he said, I had to play so many different ways and learn all these different types of spin. He used to play with an old Dunlop Fort, too, and stuff. and But he, uh, three-time All-American, and uh, you know, was, was, was you know, so I, I'm just very fortunate to get to coach those guys. My best you know, um our first All American ever was Mike Ndaffo though. He he made a bit long, long journey. He was only twenty two in the state of Florida. And he ended up being A C C player the year twice and became a two time All American. He was our first All American ever at Clemson. But oh what a serve he had and what a worker. Though all those all those guys great workers, you know, and that's that's the
2: right. you know, I'll
3: tell you Mark Dixon. Mark broke his hand his senior year. Uh, fell on it, and broke his right hand, and it was about early March, and he had to wear a cast. You know what he did? He used to hit on the backboard left-handed every day. And I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I read this thing about bilateral transfer across education. It says that I get 31% strength gain on my right hand if I work on my left side. He says, I want to be ready when I get the cast off. <laughs> Isn't that good? Here's a great Mark Dixon
0: story. <laughs> Uh, he beat Velas, and, of course, Velas was right up there. Yeah, the, you know, the, in Houston. In Houston, yeah. Beat him on clay. And, yeah. You know, I remember Brad Gilbert saying that Mark Dixon had the best second <laughs> serve in tennis, and he used to just practice and practice his serve. So yeah. uh, kids need to hear this because what he did when it was his service game, he stayed back. He didn't attack. He right. Only, he only attacked once, and he won yep. one four. I think it was four right. and four. And what he did is he just attacked once, and he knew Velas' passing shots wouldn't be grooved. Now, that's a smart, right. that's a smart competitor.
3: He, he said this. This was real smart. I remember exactly. It was with Houston. And he said that he. And when he got down to the critical points, he came in like three or four times right in a row. But he said, Coach, he says, I never let him get his passing shots warmed up. He said, I just tried to hang in, hang in, hang in. On my service game, I eat through, but then on my return game, I tried to make them last twenty minutes. And then I just and then and that's you're exactly right. I remember the match. It's interesting; we remember that match. Yeah, that was a huge match.
0: How about manichevsky Yeah, uh, he was forty nine in juniors and forty nine in pros. He he used to uh, come bring some players to our school in Tampa. We had uh, were actually branded yeah. trained there for a long time, taught there where he would come in Richard
3: Matuszewski was, you know, and, and, but here's, I remember recruiting him on the court. I recruited him in Dallas, but I saw him four courts away and he was so smooth. You know, I didn't know the UTR, didn't know his ranking, didn't know anything. <clears throat> and then I saw he had a Polish immigrant dad who was just salted the earth. And then I saw that his dad was his coach in upstate New York. And I said, huh, this kid's got a lot going from not having much opportunity. Anyhow, Richard, Richard has to be one of the favorite, best improvements ever because he actually was 13 or so on the team when he first came in. And then he, he got all the way to six. And then, like I said, but, but here's here's the thing about Richard. I always said this, and you're going to laugh at this one. I tell players all the time that they you can't see yourself, you only feel yourself. Say players that, can't see say, what they look like. Say that again? You cannot see yourself. It took me 18. I remember what I, th- I thought about this. You know, you try to explain something to a player so many times. Well, they, you can't see yourself. I don't know what my – you never know what you look like or what you sound like until you see it on a video or something. Well, back then we never had videos much. But I said if Richard Matichewski had seen himself play, how beautiful and smooth and natural that he was, holy cow. You know, I mean, he was just brilliant to watch. He glided. You couldn't hear his feet hit the ground. He would have had he had would have had he had a lot of success. But I think he could have been a top ten guy. He he was yeah. what brilliant. Great, great he was a
0: great mover too.
3: Great but mover. you know, but on the other side of that and Jay won't like this, I always tell Jay if he could have seen himself play, he would have quit. You know, <laughs> <laughs> before, before
0: we get to J, Jay Berger, I remember uh, Richard telling me that uh, his father uh, actually had to spend time in prison because he tried to escape, uh, you know, the, the communistic Polar. regime.
3: Polar. Yeah. Yeah. His dad. I used to question his dad all the time about it because I was so intrigued about World War II. But his dad said, you know, the the he said the, the Russian control of Poland was worse than the Nazis, just about. His family knew about that, but his dad has had to escape, and he came, of course, over to up by Poughkeepsie, New York, Football Junction, I think it was. And and uh, you know, his dad, of course, hardworking and raised four kids, and he loved tennis. His dad did. Dad taught him in the backyard, but it was just pureness. There was just a pureness of unruffled stuff. No UTR, no rankings or anything like that. But it was just a just a brilliant diamond. Literally at, at Dallas, I was at this indoor facility and there were like six courts lined up. Okay. I literally saw him four courts away, flowing and smooth and just brilliant the way he glided on the court. I go, who? And then I, of course, I started asking, I said, who's that kid? And then when he talked to his dad, and I recruited, uh, I love getting second generation immigrant kids yeah. because they're Americanized enough to be gunslingers a little bit, but they have all of the discipline of that immigrant mentality with work.
2: Well, the
0: Polish you know? uh, bloodline, uh, Brandon's father's American-Irish and his mother's Polish-American, but yeah. the, the Poles, they fought, in the, like say, for example, the Catholic churches, they they remain, for the most part, Catholic churches in Poland, where they weren't turned into government buildings like they have, have been, say, yeah. in, say, in Cuba. With uh, yeah. How about Jay Berger? Top 10 in the world. Jay,
3: okay, Jay, listen, our team was rolling, but ready to roll 81-82. We had Des Dunes. We had Miguel Nito and Richard and, you know, some of the, those guys. And uh, I needed something. I, you know, the re- recruiting, I said, gosh, you know, our guys are good, but they're not getting over the hump. I need somebody that's tough and gritty. And, and I went to the Orange Bowl, and I saw Jay play, and he was diving all over the court his first year 18s. I saw him play Play first time. Tory Baxter, who was working for Prince, told me there's this kid who's playing in the 16s. He's pretty tough in Florida. I went down to the last quarter, of Kalamazoo, Michigan. I saw a guy named Mike Rainey, who was from Florida, beat Jay. Okay? And Jay was like the 18th seed or something in the 16s, but nobody was recruiting him. Now they beat Jay. And afterwards, I sort of followed Jay out to out of the parking lot of Kalamazoo, and he was sitting under this tree crying, basically. Now, Paul Scarpa, who was at Furman, told me my first year coaching, he said, you never go recruit a kid or talk to them after they've won. He said, because even if the CYO open, they'll think that they're very, very special. He says, always go talk to kids after they've lost. That shows that you really care about them. So... I, went to, I was the only coach that went and talked to Jay, and I was basically the only coach recruiting him. But I went down to Miami and saw his dad and stuff, and I needed somebody. It was just tough like that. And I was very, very fortunate. Back in those days, we could go sign the kids. So I flew down to Palm Beach wherever, down that airport down there. And I met Jay. He was on the way to the Easter Bowl, and he had not broken out yet, but he signed at the airport the morning he was leaving. You know, and he signed, and he gets out there and gets to the finals, <laughs> hmm. lose the, and then everybody's all over him. But he was go- he was going to come to Clemson, hmm. so that was really a really a. But he, uh, you know, he dang natural competitor, unbelievable. Jay had Jay had a way of turning any tough situation into uh, he could look if he had had the. Jake Jake could reverse any situation and make it make it work. You know he just competed, and again he, he couldn't see. Now he he laughed at me. He said, "Coach, I had a great back." I said, "Jake," I said, "Look, I had," to, I said, his serve was unorthodox. He didn't know how to volley He swing swinging his volleys, but my gosh, he could compete when it counted. You know he was you know. Hungrier than a starving dog looking at a meat truck when he needed the point.
0: <laughs> With uh, his mindset, his son uh, is a really top golfer, correct?
3: Oh, Daniel. Isn't that cool? I mean, it's really pretty pretty neat to see that. Yeah, Daniel set the record at the, the Ryder Cup, didn't he? He was the guy that won the match that set the record for the most wins ever. You know, so, yeah, I've been following that. It's, it's really, really fun. Yeah.
0: How many years again? Thirty-three at Clemson.
3: Thirty-three at Clemson this year, nine at the Citadel. I coached year and a half basically at Tennessee Tech. So <clears throat> I'd like to keep going.
0: Is the mile time stayed consistent? What 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 do they
3: No at they- nah, the Citadel it's five twenty five. Five twenty five. If you make the mile, you can be on the team. But then you gotta bring stuff to the table every day. There's more to it than that. At Clemson, it was five fifteen. At five twenty, then it went to five fifteen when we had our best team. So the guys really had to train, but it always weeded out the kids that weren't completely dedicated, you know. And people, kids would say, "Well, what? What does this track have to do with tennis?" I said, "It's a running sport. It has everything. It's a running sport. Fitness is the base."
0: Yeah, I tell people why I hate no ad too. I, well, I'm it, sorry, I interrupted you. What were you saying?
3: No, no, that's why I hate no ad too. Okay. Yeah, come on,
0: yeah, I tell kids if they don't like to they don't like to run take up golf
3: right um, I mean you know I mean, come on, fitness is the cornerstone of confidence in most every sport too, and you know, we're not even requiring our kids to be in great shape now to play tennis, so with, uh, Anyhow.
0: Yeah, Brandon, what do you got? Let's we'll have to ask a few more questions. We appreciate all your time. I know
3: the listeners will... No, it's been really good. I, it, I'm honored. Thank you. No,
1: I really appreciate it. I think selfishly, uh, I'd love to hear your your best or your, your favorite Paul Scarpa story as a coach that I played under at Furman.
3: Well, uh, Paul, most people don't know about Paul Scarpa is that He was a great. He was a basketball coach. He was a soccer coach. Paul Scarpa was the person who invent person who invented the uh, synthetic uh, clay court lines. He got together with the thing. His great. uh, Paul wrestled a bear (laughs) one time at a basketball game. Wow. (laughs) Paul had the best camps ever with children. I have Paul Scarpa, so Paul was the one who uh he comes up with innovation after innovation. And and he really I called Paul the Yoda of of college tennis coaching. He's Yoda. <laughs> he is the ultimate uh um, my look my first year I didn't know what I was doing. I was 25 years old. I'd never recruited. Paul took me. We went to Ocala together to that that tournament you used to have in Ocala. We went to Tampa together. And he just, he would take me, talking about a mentor, is that he would help me. Now, Paul never cared about getting credit for anything. He just loved the sport of tennis. Mm. And every one of his, every one of Paul's uh, stories would have something about it that you were going to remember, you know, forever. His values were always about honoring the game first. You know, of course, honesty, hard work, doing the right things. And, uh, you know, he, but, but, the, the the point the point in the end is, is this you know he he was just he was just a good man first and a great teacher and uh, you know I I told him Paul we we got it why don't you you need to get Paul on your show to talk but I I've tried to get him you know to do some things and he Paul is just happy. In any situation, he is, but he was the great player. Most people don't know he used to coach at Florida State and Naval Academy, too. Mm. And he was the winningest, and was still, is he the winningest coach in the history of collegiate tennis? I think he is, or the I, guy at Air, I think Air Force, maybe. I think
1: so, yeah. I haven't checked that. He's a, he's
0: a great player, too, correct?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He holds a lot of records. Listen to this. That tournament I was telling you, Belton, South Carolina, Paul Scarpa won it in 1950 something. You know they played three out of five sets hmm. in junior tennis. You know they and they three out of five sets. Holy cow! I mean, come on, what are we doing? It just makes me so upset when the, the way we dumb dumbing down doesn't ever make things better.
0: Mm-hmm. Brandon, why do you know you, it uh, doesn't? For for Chuck and our listeners,
1: why don't you uh, give us a little Paul Scarpa? Paul Scarpa. If you look at the tennis, <laughs> if you look at the tennis. Code, <laughs>
2: Let me tell you,
3: the, the let, same, no, the, let, same. let me tell you, yeah, go. let same. me tell you yeah, right about it here. <laughs> Chuck, Chuck, that is Clay Court, Chuck. Had, let, let me, let me, let me tell you. No, no, no. I quoted him today. No, no. I quoted him on the way back from practice today. The guys were talking about the drinking and stuff like that, you know, and things and guys were talking about, I said, okay, guys, I used to have all these rules. Let me tell you what, Paul Scarpa, I did this today. I, I I said, let me tell you what Paul Scarf always said about drinking. He said, he said, when you drink, he says, at first the man takes the drink. He said, then the drink takes the drink, then the drink takes the man, you know? And I said, guys, I said, that's about all I can tell you, because you're going to get to, you're going to, you're going to be all, all messing with that stuff, but you're going to, you're going to have to make good decisions, guys. But with, uh, that's a Paul
0: Scarpa. With, with booze, you lose. And with dope, there's no hope. But let's have a contest here. We'll get Paul Scarpa to be the judge. But let's have... Uh, <laughs> Bran go 1st we'll a Paul Scarpa voice. And then Chuck Creasy will go second. So Bran, give us a little Paul Scarpa.
1: My name is Paul Scarpa. If you look, <laughs> if, if you look at the service box, it's kind of like the size of a small bedroom. And when you're serving... If the bed is in the corner, you want to serve to the pillars.
3: That's <laughs> so good. That's so good. You know what he did? We were playing Furman over there. Okay. Oh, my God. This is He's so brilliant. The guy is so smart. Okay. So, Paul, I, I don't want to just – I'll do the impression here in a second. So, we go over there and play Furman. They must have had 800 people packed in that indoor facility. And, oh, my gosh, we had toughest match. So I said to him afterwards, Paul, what'd you do? He said, I'll tell you, Chuck, Chuck, I'm going to show you and tell you how I did this. Okay. So what I did, what I did was he says, I went up and I got all of these tickets printed. I saw a guy, I got these tickets printed that said, said Furman versus Clemson, seven o'clock Thursday night. And I put on there $8 each, okay, $8 admission. He said, and I got about 100 of them, and I went around town. And I said, oh, by the way, I got four extra tickets here. He said, you want to go to to the tennis match? Well, and you give them four tickets that are free, nobody's going to go. But he said, since I put $8 on there, that's $32. They're going to say, hey, we can't throw away $32. Let's go to the tennis match. I mean, isn't that brilliant? That's great, yeah. I mean, so Scarpa, and then he's got so many, so many, so many. He wrote a letter. One time he's trying to, uh, Jimmy Wynn was one of his top players. Do you remember Jimmy? No, no. Okay, Jimmy was playing a big big match at, at the Southern Conference Tournament. And Paul went up, and he, at the hotel, he sort of baited his kid. He made this thing look like one of the rivals had written this thing about him. It says, I'll make quick business out of Jimmy. I'll kick him around pretty good. <laughs> And And he, he made sure that the kid got the... the Jimmy Wynn got this written down, you know, it's just like sending something now, you know, like but 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 I mean he's so it was so smart. He used to tell I mean the strategies too. I mean just he's just, he's a brilliant, brilliant man, but a great man. So Chuck, never Chuck, honest deep,
0: through and through. Take a deep breath and give us a little pause.
3: <laughs> let me tell you <laughs> let, let, let me tell you now. Um, this is the way I look at it. Um, uh, when when you when you play a long match, <laughs> and, and so I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I I'm not as good, as, you know. So
0: give us a, give us a story on uh, the chocolate drink, Brandon. I, I may have asked you to do it before. We've so done no this one before, before yeah. our yeah. Very quickly, Chuck's got to hear this one.
1: Oh yeah. So um, we we had a we had a bunch of fun with with uh, of course you know the whole team. The team and and Coach Scarpa and we had a great assistant coach there, Alan Ferguson, who was a lot of fun too. Yeah, yeah, Alan, yeah, 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 yeah. Lo- love, love, uh, love, love Alan as well. And so, um, one of the one of the classic stories was the word on the street was that Coach Scarpa had made a made a decent chunk of change in the stock market, and we found out that he had invested in Yahoo. This is right right around the the. Uh, you know the internet right before the internet bubble burst, and he kind of did really well with his with his Yahoo stock. And so one of the players asked asked Coach Scarpa said, "Well, Coach, how would you know to invest in Yahoo at such an early stage in in the development of the internet and and their company?" and And he said, "Well, well, I just always loved their delicious chocolate, chocolatey." drink. <laughs> oh, I can
2: <couldn't> believe it. <laughs> I can't believe it.
0: Oh, it's so great. Yeah. I would have loved to go. Oh. I would have loved to have gone to his camp. Uh, last week, we interviewed a young coach, assistant, Raleigh, what we call him, Raleigh. Raleigh, Raleigh. Give him a hard time, Raleigh Grossbaum. But it was telling him, you need to run your own camp. You know, I don't, in all fairness to Nike and Adidas.
3: Yeah, no, no, Charlie, no, no. Absolutely. Charlie Hovell. I never
0: got to run your own camp.
3: That's right. Because you're not going to care as much. Yeah. You know, you care more when it's yours. And that's right.
1: You know, I, I one regret is not working for for Coach Scarpa's camp. But Steve used to kind of threaten me to keep coming down to Tampa in the summer, so I had to keep coming yeah. down to Tampa.
3: Well, listen, I, I that just last week with my daughter and her friend is on the high school team. I said this way, Coach Scarpa used to teach the forehand. He said he used to bring a dog out there and put the dog. It's about two foot high about contact, but and he would t- take the dog and he said, "Okay, here's how you here's how you hit a forehand." You start right at the tail, and you get down with his hand, and he scratched that dog on the back all the way up, and then he said, your hands have to be relaxed enough to tickle the dog's ears. <laughs> <laughs> so he's used to, but I was trying to explain that to my daughter about keeping her hands relaxed.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Actually, but, but, you know, stuff isn't that amazing?
0: I, I got to meet... But Paul Scarpa really, did, you know, sometimes you shake hands and you're introduced to someone, but I got to meet him because Brandon applied to, to Furman and we sent a VHS tape and he called me up and he was really impressed with Brandon's ball striking skills. And then he, you know, he put it together with the conversation we had with my Braden, Vandermeer, Van Horn, oddy doddy background. But he also was, at that time, he was very intrigued by what uh, Craig Tiley was doing at Illinois. Uh, but he so, he, you know, light, what I would call a lifelong learner. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I remember you yeah. you bringing a young gal just to see what we had to think about her, serve the young gal. Uh,
3: oh, yeah, Nopawan, when I was. Yeah, that's right. You worked, you helped her serve. Yeah, she was a, lot, a, you know? a
0: junior Wimbledon champion. Tell
3: us about that experience. Right.
0: What was it like? To oh, them? my
3: gosh. <laughs> that's, that's, so uh, after Clemson, <clears throat> I had an opportunity to go over, uh, the technical director for Southeast Asia tennis and, you know, in the national coach for the, the Thai kids some and uh, my my thing was I went over there I did seminars in, in about seven different countries but then we the main thing was to create this training center there in Bangkok and we had uh, kids from different countries in Southeast Asia come in but the, the Thai started doing better did real well and then they had a girl, Nopawan Lurchi Wakarn, and then some others. And then there were several of um, the players that were doing good. Uh, Udom Choke, uh, you know, Denai Udom Choke, he was already older. But the Roddy Tiwana brothers, who were twin brothers, and they'd actually played against the Bryan brothers, two sets of twins played each, against each other one year. But, uh, you know, they but they were already in the pros. But the, the main thing was we. Uh, you know, when this young lady started doing pretty well, um, she she got up to number one in the world. And she won uh, Wimbledon singles and doubles, won French Open doubles, won U.S. Open doubles. And then talking about uh, me being completely upset, she came over the second time after she won Wimbledon. U.S. Open this next year when she came that over, she was seated like number three, and she was really rolling, doing well. She's just gone through some tough matches. Quarterfinals, it rains, and you know what they did? <laughs> they pushed us into indoors, indoor tennis. And I said, is this is the U.S. Open. It's not the U.S. Open indoors. And they, oh, I raised as much cane as I could. I mean, several players, there was an Indian guy that really got <clears> – <throat> Messed over. I mean, he was such, I forget the guy's name, he was dominating everything and he had to go indoors. So it allowed the big bangers to do better. And my girl got beat like three and two or something. And I was pissed, pardon me, but I was mad. I just said, How many indoor courts do you think we have in Thailand? Zero. You know, and I mean, they had to play they had to play super bowl tennis you know and the, the guy was really wrong i mean he was very he just said well we have to do the same for both players no it's not you would never take you would never take an indoor court and, and a tournament and then say okay we're going outside and play on the clay you know would you would you ever take a hard court player in the tournament and say we're going to play in clay but the, these these uh, officials are always ready to run indoors when it starts raining so anyhow that's I'm whining a little bit there. I don't little cheese and crackers go along with my wine here. You know, but the, the point being with, with that is she did real well. I did that for a couple of years, traveling around and then it was just, it's too hard on the family. I had my young family over there in Thailand. It was a great split though, for me to decompress after Clemson. And so, uh, I went over and then, uh, I got a job afterwards. I was bringing the Thai kids over to uh, College Park, and uh, we were trying to set up a thing where we could call it Southeast Asia, USA. and then we I was trying to set up a thing for them in the Netherlands. I was going to have Southeast Asia training in Europe, USA, and in Asia, where they, they could go. The kids could go three different places and train. And it this thing sorta of started falling apart and then I got a job at College Park, Maryland. You know, so and then I was there for three and a half years. Chuck but out. I brought her to you yeah. I brought her to you when we were traveling around playing all of those, um I forget, you know, the entry level pro tournaments. Yeah. And uh she was trying to get her W T A ranking up and then you were you you know, you helped her with her serve. It was so embarrassing she went to it. And her her serve, she used to. Holy cow, she had some mechanical things. And you've had players where you know you've been asked, uh, and nobody's ever taken a look at that serve. Yes, like every day for a year. We, but uh,
0: uh, let me ask, I always ask this. Uh, you, it's great how you quote your mother. My uh, my mother had snake phobia. Tell us about the two cobras in your in your laundry oh, in your laundry oh,
3: room. No, no, it was a neighbors. Our neighbors, you know, we bought we had a we had a five year old, three year old, and one year old in Thailand. Thailand, Bangkok is like the Venice of Asia, right? It's built over water, pretty much. You know, there's all these canals and everything. Well, our neighbor our neighbors found it was a nest. They found a couple baby cobras under their uh, washing machine on the back porch. Well, they sent this guy over to get them this Thai guy comes over he just sort of picks them up with gloves and throws them over the fence. Didn't kill them. <laughs> they, they, of course the religion, they will not harm a fly. They won't, they won't kill anything, you know, animals or anything. And I understand, but Holy cow. So we bought a dog. We bought a dog named Scout and Scout was with us until he got brought him back to the States and he got hit by a car a couple years ago. But Scout was, uh, we we had to have some kind of protection out there but there were so many snakes they said you can't see them you know there's (laughs) it's 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 uh you know but it's people people fine they have millions of people they get along just fine so you know you get along fine It was a fantastic fantastic adventure i've never been in a place where people were more kind and just uh there's so much talent in asia that's um not, uh, not developed. It's yeah. not developed. Just, they don't, they don't have the opportunities.
1: You know, Chuck, Steve loves snakes. so I just, I'm going to, after this podcast, I'm going to book him a flight to Thailand. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. You, gotta be car-
0: you gotta be careful. What you tell people, I, Gary Weideman, I trained to teach tennis, <clears throat> and from West Texas, um, it wasn't a, a paperweight. It was a life-size rattlesnake in, in a glass enclosure and he gave it to me as a gift and I left it on my desk. You know, he was a two-year program. I had to wait for him to graduate. The day he graduated, I threw, I threw it away.
2: I wasn't going to no. ask anybody. Does anybody want
0: this? But I was like, okay, "Oh my gosh. I have a little, little snake phobia." But I'm going to keep this rattlesnake on my desk for two years. No. Two years. Yeah,
3: it's okay. That's okay. We got enough over here. I, that's that's a tough one. You know. So,
0: tell us a little about your upcoming season, and then we'll have to let you go to bed here.
3: Okay. Well, you're awful kind. Uh, we are at citadel now of course everybody's been up uh turned upside down because of the virus years you know and everything and we're so happy to be having a season last year we canceled probably 15 matches and probably got 10 10 at the last minute so we were able to have a schedule but uh we start uh we've again i play teams can't win could win should win gonna win we've got like uh, seven ACC or FCC matches that stem from Vanderbilt to Georgia Tech to Clemson to South Carolina to, you know, any, you know, shootouts trying to get a doubleheader with North Carolina Duke. But, uh, you know, you you hope the association breeds assimilation, but usually, you know, we can't hang with those guys, you know. But, uh, you know, tennis, you you, you want people to know how to win. So I feel like we've got some matches that we're going to get wrecked at doing that, hopefully. But, uh, you know, the Southern conference uh, uh, top team has been East Tennessee state and then Furman has got a great team and they've got J uh, and JJ Whitlinger, you know, John Whitlinger's son. He's a, really a good man and, and he's, he's kind and hardworking and, and uh, they look like they could be the class of the league. Wofford has a very good team this year, best team I've seen Wofford have. A guy named Rod Ray coaches. His son is is really a star, and, and uh, a good. They're just good people and hardworking. You know, and who does a great job is Chuck Mersbacher at Chattanooga. Now Chuck used to coach the women at Ohio State and then at Minnesota, but he was a great grit and tough player at Minnesota under Jerry. I think it was Jerry. He played for Jerry Noyce Mm -hmm. back a while ago, but he's a good coach. But they're just real Eric Hayes. Of course, is at Mercer, who who used to be an assistant. He grew up in Clemson. And I just, you know, he's he's doing a fantastic job. I really love Samford has a good, really good team. They were good last year. And, you know, and then uh, so then we have, of course, in in the conference, you know, I didn't want to leave, leave out UNC Greensboro for sure, but uh, I think I think I've covered everybody. But we have eight eight teams, very competitive conference, and we have teams that travel through. I try to convince teams to come through South Charleston. Don't go all the way down to Florida; just come to Charleston, and it's a pretty good place to have your kids in the spring. And you know, we try to get matches there. I, uh, I, see, you know, I
0: listened to one of your podcasts. I was so impressed how you you talked about each player and everything from their upbringing to their parents, the GPAs, right. and you know what the, what they're intending right. to do with their careers. Right. And um, yeah, it's great that uh, you're so passionate about your your team
2: players.
3: Well, no, it's 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 fantastic. The kids, we are, we had a three point three point five eight grade point average. Okay, we had. Six 4.0s now you have to go to class <laughs> you know it's that helps that helps if you go to class you college students out there and uh, so it's really good but uh, the guys have high achievement needs and uh, you know we I, I get guys that are from primarily from uh, South Carolina North Carolina I've got a you know a, a boy from Texas and you know uh, we, we have pretty much... Uh you know you know our guys we just we just compete very hard every time out, and I've got a very good player coming up from Arkansas that uh sort of got left out but was lucky for us despite the virus stuff. he lost an opportunity because the school he was going to go to kept on some of their seniors, so he was without a place to go and and he's just growing like a weed as far as just being a very good player then Josiah. Of course, Josiah sheep but I'm telling you, you know, Steve, I saw him play four courts down and he was running like crazy around back in the bushes, shoveling balls over, you know, 40 foot over the net, just running and running and running. Then he spent that summer with you in Memphis and he completely revamped his game and he's made a big, big jump. But he started out like number eight and he's like our number two or three guy this year. He's doing really, really well. He's a senior now. It huh.
0: Goes by fast, doesn't it? He's seen
3: no. Oh, and the best thing—he's going to be a pilot. He's—he wants to be, uh, uh, you know, a like a top gun pirate pilot, pirate pilot. <laughs> you know, so he's. Uh, it's it's pretty impressive what these guys do.
0: Well, it's so impressive. You know, so. so impressive what you've done uh, What a great career, and
1: it's fantastic to have you uh, speak to our listeners, well,
0: Brandon. Anything you want to
1: ask I, before we sign off? Just an absolute pleasure to 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 listen to you and have a conversation with you tonight, Chuck. And um, anytime you're you're down in this neighborhood, you've got an open invite to come in. And,
3: Brandon, you know. I really thank you. But listen, you've got to run down Paul Scarpa and get him on. Okay? That, would, that would be great. Yeah. That
1: would that would yes, that would be that's a great a great idea. That'd well, be a think, lot of fun. I think he'd have fun just listening to this podcast. Uh, <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah.
3: With, uh,
0: but, but no, Chuck. Uh,
3: Steve, I got I got. <clears throat> I got, I got, uh, uh, one more thing I want to say to oh, you, Please, please. your, your posterity will be great regardless of your prosperity. How's that? Thanks for, thanks for teaching all these kids what you oh, do. Thanks. Okay. That sounds like
0: you say so many things that could be written on the bathroom wall. I mean, it's just, I, I, really, I think <laughs> young coaches, uh, should, it should be an assignment for them to go through this and just write down. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh to me when it comes down to the character and and the the quotes, the things that you say, the stories, uh, the John Wooden of uh, coaching for tennis. It's amazing.
3: Well, thank you. You're very kind, appreciate it. And you guys you guys are, it's really, really been fun. We'll get together, son. Let's keep it rolling. Hey, yeah, well, the best works ahead.
0: No, we'll get you on okay. again. We we do have uh these are lengthy podcasts. It's a different platform, but we've got people that throughout the week uh, they listen to ten minutes here and ten minutes there. I, I know right now, I, I say, I say everybody and their brother has a podcast, but uh, but you know we want to really try to carry the torch um, because, I, as you said, and we both agree that I grew up in ice hockey and like no one would ever say that Bobby Orr couldn't play in today's game. You know, when you when you were quoting Braden about how slow the ball was hit. But even though it was slow, back then, yeah even yeah. Though, even though it was slower uh there were so many things that the players did better yesteryear than they're doing right. now.
3: Yeah, it's multi-dimensional i mean the spins the shots the strategies so many things
0: yeah just now play.
3: oh i hate i hate listen i'm done i'm not i hate i do not like nba basketball i mean it's too pattern, even college basketball now it's just you know they either run down shoot a, shoot a quick layup or throw back out shoot a three it's there used to be so many different sets so many different patterns they play chess but they've reduced most of our sports to checkers i mean tennis you know the the three strikes the first strike tennis stuff is like checkers it used to be chess
0: no, I get tired. You know I get tired of hearing uh, serve plus one. And, you know when? No, 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 when, no. Like no. when a ten-year-old when is hearing that, arch your, arch your back, kick the serve in, and just hit forehands. No. Forehand.
3: no, 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 no. There's a lot much more. If that's all you see when you see a tennis match, you ain't getting it. You know, I mean, it's you play tennis from the inside out, but you have to practice enough to where you become automatic, or they say. You know, you, you go from, what, uh, unconsciously incompetent to consciously incompetent to consciously competent to unconsciously competent, where you're automatic under pressure. You can only become that chess player, finally, when you're automatic under pressure. You know, and when you when you get there, then the game starts. But if, if you only see the ball striking, they, they ain't watching deep.
0: I think one thing, that,
3: that ain't
2: it.
0: <laughs> before, we, before we sign off, I think uh, people could go to YouTube and... Plug in your name, Power Five Tennis, and you're talking about Paul Award yeah. Law and the Directionals, yeah. right. and I think that's one thing that's uh, really sad on YouTube is that people aren't talking about learning from other people. It's like there are, like you said, the messenger is ahead of the message.
3: Right. Um, right. Well, look, people will judge you more about what you say about others than what others say about you and in, in both ways. That's why I always tell my guys you don't know, try not talk badly about other people ever, you know, it it because it you know, but you know, you've got to give credit to these people. You've got to give credit to Paul Wardlaw. I mean, his is brilliant. It's simple 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 brilliance is what he figured out.
0: Yeah, I think people just you know? look that up uh, just what you do in maybe 5 to 10 minutes on YouTube that you can just put in Chuck Reezy Power 5, I think it's called. Um, what about flow charting, mo- momentum charting? Why don't you just give a couple of comments on that as a last question?
3: Oh, real quick, Bob Love, that's Bob Love, Louisville, Kentucky. When I started working momentum control, I'm doing the thing at PTR, actually, momentum control, if they, don't, if they still have me come. But uh, 1979, I started working on, on momentum control, and I've been sort of uh, – I've worked on it forever, but Bob Love uh, from Louisville, Kentucky – and I, I don't know. I haven't been in contact for years. I don't know if he's around or everything. But Bob uh, contacted me. Said, "Look, I do flow charting with volleyball all the time. Can I show you what I do?" I didn't know what flow charting was, and I went. And he brought out this graph paper, and he just said, "Look, you, you go up, you go down, you go, or you up down, up down, and and." according to how the point flows. And he said, I want to show you something. And he showed me this match with, he said, I do this with tennis. Here's McEnroe Connors. He said, Connors won this match, and here's why. There were three times he grouped threes. He said, the key to tennis is grouping threes. See, in no tennis, you don't have to win but one in a row. In regular tennis, if you don't win the first point of the game, you have to win three in a row or four out of five. You have to know how to win three in a row and group points. That's what our players cannot do. You know, and he said three in a row, and I came up with a rhyme, of course, three in a row starts to flow. So when I'm teaching momentum control, I have eight rules of momentum control. I teach grouping points first. And then the posturing with the score, whether you're head behind or even, and then I call action reaction things that have just happened. You know, and how you respond to they're good, they're bad, and you're good, you're bad, because it's always flowing in momentum control. And what what happens in tennis is your hands are, go, your fine motor skills are either there or they're not there. Sometimes they're neutral, but they work great at times and they work crummy at times. And if you know how to manage your hand-eye coordination working at the right time based on what the other guy is doing too, you know, you can almost predict exactly what's going to happen. So, but Bob Love is responsible for that, you know, and then, and then the rest of it is, is a lot of stories too, but I started 1979 trying to work on momentum control. And I really think it's the key to all sports, you know, so. I
0: right, would, a couple of things first, Bob Love, I believe this came from him. We, we I used to, Test students and say, "Okay, we say this is this is a, a pearl a pearl of wisdom. <laughs> if you swing efficiently, there is no net. You know, you, if you get your mm-hmm. racket below the ball and you're lifting up, uh, you're, you're not going to miss in the net." Yeah. With um, yeah, but no, I, the icebreaker. What a great idea to play the ten point tiebreaker first, and then say, "Okay, play play it
3: first play first. Try it. Try it. it it's great." But and and the, the the right player works. The wins. The better player wins.
0: One thing. Uh, no, it, I was in Europe for like four months taking kids to 14 and under tournaments and a coach from the, uh, the Danish tennis federation. I picked this up from him and it's another pearl of wisdom is that we used to have from, from him, we have kids play sets. And the only way you can win a game is you got to win three points in a row.
3: Right. uh, Three in a row. And, but then Bob Love might've done that. I went to Spain with Bob in 1991. I went over and did the Spanish symposium over there. Yeah. And Bob brought that up. I think, you know, he, he was the one that sort of brought up, they called it conversion sets. I still do conversions. I call them conversions three in a row. Three in a row starts to flow. But it's, it's a fantastic way for kids to learn how to group points. It with regular scoring...
0: I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's a great way, too, to have the superior player, the kid who's maybe, you know, one on the team playing number six on the team, say, okay, let's, you know, just go out and try to win three points in a row. Instead of yeah. where they kind of they cruise along right. and win three and three.
3: It's amazing how anybody can win one. The underdog throws a party if they win two, and then they choke on the third. The <laughs> superior player. No, it's true. It's true. I've told, I've been able to help a few times. Got lucky to help turn matches when I coach. I tell the guy, just try to win three in a row. The last two of the last games, and then try to get the first and next. Just try to get three in a row. Three in a row yeah. starts to flow, you know,
0: so. Uh, so, many I tell things, the guys, uh, so many things. Come I tell the,
3: go ahead. No, no I just, that I tell the guys, just kind of like when you ask a girl out, <laughs> it should go the first time, just try a second time I ask you. But if you, three in a row, you got a girlfriend. <laughs> 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 I, think it's,
0: oh, I think it's great. I mean, obviously you draw so many things from this conversation, but one is, uh, how you mentioned the coaches from your uh, upbringing. And again, I'll say it a second time, the quotes from your mom and the the priest on the visor, the, the $20 with Hopman. Um, young, young people need to, and I, I don't think young people are, are doing that now where they're pushing some buttons, not to beat up young people, but they're pushing some buttons on YouTube and you've got to put yourself around people like yourself to, you got to be mentored by. No, thank um, you. Actually, Daniel Coyle says that in his book is that you know the the, yeah. the governing bodies of tennis. Um, maybe I'm trying to promote myself for a job, you know, not really. But they h- to hire sixty yeah. and seventy year olds. Uh,
3: no, 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 no. That's why. Listen, that's why they retire old people. They want to get rid of the, the the people who've been around the block. You know, I and the. <laughs> Greg Patton. Used, uh, anyhow, he's he. Greg Patton's another coach. That's a whole new story. But he about the mentoring thing, you know, uh, and then Rick, listen, uh, Vincent Ponca used to say you have to have older coaches in your organization because they've seen enough, you know, the, there's more wisdom. My mother used to say that wisdom is, is knowledge plus the truth of experience. She used to say that, you know, and you, you've, you've got to go through it enough mm-hmm. because God knows we've messed up enough. That's going to, be, you know. going
0: to be an assignment from this podcast is what your mother told you. But, no, actually, when you get to be an old, old coach, um, you know, I look older than you because I've gone bald and you've got all your hair, but actually when you're our age, Jock, uh, when you meet the parents, it's like you're really meeting children. I don't want to be disrespectful, but if you're, you know, 20, 25, 30 years older than the parents, you know, it's, you, you just, you know, you can see the youthfulness and the, the lack of lack of experience.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, parents I mean, have to trust you, though. Yeah, parents. Parents just need to. I always tell. Parents, well, I'm, and I'm doing a pretty good job so far, not in interfering at all with my son's baseball or anything like that. It's tough. It's tough not to, but you just baseball or my daughter's stuff, you know, tennis or anything. You, parents leave the coaches coach. Well, don't I, don't yeah, don't interfere. I
0: think it's good to <clears> tell the parents that you know, first of all, you know, fan is short for fanatical. And, the, and the, 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 that's right. the parents are their, uh, um, they're, their number, uh, their kid's number one fan. And ho- hopefully they yeah. are. And I think that's pretty yeah. straight across the board. I talked to Matt that's Canole right. today, who did so much. Oh on, gosh. On killer, yeah. And he, he said something, and I said, I just got to start telling that, repeating this. So you don't forget it is that too many parents are letting their kids have dessert before they eat their vegetables.
3: You know, that's about right. That, that's that's that, about that, right.
0: the tails wagging the dog, and and that's like who's in charge? I mean, the yeah. ship the ship has no rudder.
3: But that's that, that's right. But you know, that's uh, that's that's a tough one. We're all beginners at parenting, and I, you know, you you hope that you do the best you can, boy. It's it's a it's a tough one, though.
0: Important job. Roots
3: but, and wings. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, does parenting. There's no directions, but you're right. Yeah, you got to give your kids roots and wings. I've heard that over
3: roots and wings, and wings are much harder. The roots are tough enough, but the wings. Whew, that's a tough one. You got to send them out,
0: huh? Yeah, there's some. I mean, it's like have you cut the umbilical cord? I mean, they just they just can't. they're and I think that's also in all fairness to parents today. It's. Uh, it's more difficult to give your children independence because years ago when you and I were a kid you just get on your bike and you go places and <clears> and now the people, people people
3: looked out for you too.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and we all knew our neighbors and yeah, the time yeah. has changed.
3: Yeah, you had you had a responsibility to your community. The reason uh, my my friend, oh ah, gosh, <laughs> you know, Tom Higgins coached all those years at Eastern Kentucky. He's in Charleston, so he he uh, did this thing, actually, it was in a, was in a, a Sunday school with, with, uh, a church where my mother, mother-in-law was going. He said, look, here's why our kids have trouble with the law. He says your circle of, of influence, you know, usually it's, it's supposed to be first God, then your family, then your neighborhood, your community, and your town, then the law. He says, but we've broken down. Relate all of those relationships, those circle of influences have broken down, and so then people have trouble with the law, and people have, you know. And and the point is, is all those we we got harsher punishment sometime from our neighbors' moms than we did from our own parents because people looked out for each other. But anyhow, it's not going back that way, you know. Again, people—we've never had more communication and fewer relationships, real good relationships, we You know, so yeah.
0: So, Jack has been awesome.
3: Okay, hey, thank you both, Brandon. Yeah. God nice. bless you guys, and keep keep the good work going. And hey, let's—I uh, look forward to seeing you sometime down there in Florida, Steve, and yeah. we can we can talk about stuff i i think we we still have some influence somewhere and you know i I think it's we've got to just uh try to get this maybe the mentoring thing going or just uh yeah you know influence the youth the young people
0: you know i've been in the the lane of really teaching so many kids basics and so you obviously then we always say you know information you gotta have basics vince Lombardi would be brilliant basics but then it's character um but for people just to listen to you, I mean, it's it's just it's a lesson after lesson in character.
3: But let's let's do this again. Well, thank you, thank you, man. It, it, God bless you guys and, yeah. and take care. And thanks for the work you guys yeah, and, uh, did.
0: Thanks, Chuck. We'll ask Paul Scarpa who won the contest, and then we'll. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and
3: if you there, guys got to get him on. And whoever loses, whoever,
0: whoever loses, we'll have to have a rematch. But yeah, we'll call, okay. call Coach Scarpa. All right.
3: Lots, All right. lots of fun, guys. All right. good, good night. night. Good fun. luck this season. Good All the You and you your buddy. team, family. Thanks. Bye.
0: All right, let's wrap that up, Phil, and again, Another short podcast. Oh, That's yeah. to me. It's like if you're really into tennis, you don't even consider the length of that. I know you got to listen when you're in your car, and 10 minutes here, and 10 minutes there. Then over the course of a week, um,
1: that was fantastic. Uh, why don't you just go give us a couple of takeaways, and we'll sign off. Sure. The big thing that clicked for me was honoring the sport, honoring the history. <laughs> And I think that's something that doesn't happen. He's absolutely right. And it's really something that I've thought about a little bit, but the way he was able to articulate it, I think he's totally right. Whatever we can do to, to continue to honor the coaches of the past, the players of the past, the traditions of the tournaments. And uh, I think you had maybe mentioned that about golf as well, but, and, uh, and the, the message versus the messenger as well. I think that was, those are really two critical points about the health of our game. Um, the talking heads, the coaches, and the young players to uh, to all honor the honor the game and honor the history. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things.
0: Uh, I think of students of mine, uh, Alex Vukovic, who uh, you know, he played, played at Princeton. He, he spent some time with, with Chuck and calls me up. You ever heard of Chuck Creasy? And I go, everybody in tennis has heard of Chuck Creasy. Uh, Alex was green and new to the tennis teaching. He got himself in a little trouble by, um, just being so open and honest about, you know, I mean, people like talking to people when he was there, like Mitchell Frank and Dennis Kudla. And actually he brought junior Ore to me. So junior mm-hmm. ore um, but, uh, I think about Tom Jilly, who was with us. Then he spent 15 years working for, for Vandermeer. He did camps with, uh, Chuck Greasy. We've his Tom to be on and, um, and then you know, like say Josiah, who's his ca- captain, um, with um, yeah, just so principled, just so principled. I think the, I mean, again, the what he says he can hear the voices of his coaches mm-hmm. from years mm-hmm. ago, or you know, he puts a visor down in his car, and you know, the the priest from his Catholic high school, and or the story with Hoffman with twenty dollars, and those are the things. Uh, it's not. I always tell people the tennis part's easy. Actually, to me, to teach to teach technique at a high level, you can only do that if you teach character first. Mm. All you do is teach character first. And then also too is that in paying your dues, um, I mean, whether it's a language, whether it's a musical instrument, ten years is just a good start. You know, so you know, we have people come in and they think, Okay, they're gonna spend two or three days with us, but it's like, you know, I've been telling this story just here the last couple of days to a couple of interns where when I was at Tyler Junior College, 10 years, tennis tech, the b- big-time program was the Apache Bells. When I was there, they went to the Super Bowl twice. They went to the White House twice. And they performed at halftime, mainly football, the basketball. They'd be in parades. They traveled all over. Now, when, the, when they, they had to be fit, you know, they, had to be, they were weighed every day at practice. Some people say, oh, that's not right. And the first year, it was a two-year program, the first-year students... They were not allowed to ask, even ask questions. Very much how they teach, uh, you know, those forms of martial arts, mm-hmm. and with um, they had to stretch. I mean, like, like a, like a, we t- we don't know that in tennis. Like, like if you're so a truck a coach, Creasy has a background in track and field. It's like okay, we're gonna stretch for thirty minutes here and thirty minutes there. And um, but it, it's pretty simple formula. The you, you just have to have. Boatload after boatload of discipline. Mm -hmm. And you you know, you, a guy, Coach Creasy, is going to get people to look him in the eye and you can just tell he's so sincere. And um, yeah, just fantastic opportunity to listen and talk about his background in tennis and how so much he cares, how much he cares about the game. Mm -hmm. But signing off. Signing off. All right.
1: Adios, amigos. Yeah.
0: Thanks. Podcast 74, Chuck Creasy in the books. Awesome.